It's time for the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores. Capital Mazda, Stevens Creek Mazda, Concord Mazda, and Team Mazda. Hey, it's Shondell Grand. And right now we've got a huge selection of brand new Mazdas with exciting spring incentives across our entire lineup. Plus, you can buy your new Mazda completely online with our exclusive no-brainer checkout. Don't miss the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores in San Jose, Concord, and Vallejo. You're listening to the Sharks Audio Network. Now, here's your host, Ted Ramey. All right, everyone, it is time for a new season of hockey, which means we've got to take a look at the rest of the Pacific Division because obviously you know your Sharks very, very well, but there's a lot to know about everything happening in the Pacific Division. Whether it's Calgary trying to win the Battle of Alberta this time around, Vegas with a new head coach, Vancouver hoping the Bruce Boudreaux effect continues in year number two. So much to get into. And in fact, that's a good jumping off point. Let's talk about the Vancouver Canucks. They had a terrible start, but then they went 32, 15, and 10 in 57 games after Bruce Boudreaux took over on December 5th. They finished up with a record of 40, 30, and 12, fifth in the Pacific, did not make the playoffs. And to get into everything Vancouver, we are now joined by the radio play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks, Brendan Batchelor. Brendan, what's going on, man? How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Always, man. It's uh, always fun to get ready for the start of the season. We know that there's not a lot of a lot of new storylines that are going to be written. And I'll go with the uh, the low-hanging fruit, because this was the one that I think everybody wondered about last year, is the Bruce Boudreaux effect, and how realistic is it to expect that to happen again this year? Because we can extrapolate and say, oh, if if he had been here the entire time, the Vancouver would have been this, that, or the other thing. And we all know that sports are never that linear. But at the same time, I do feel, Brendan, like, hey, this was a palpable change and everything with this team changed very, very quickly. I don't think that ends in just one offseason, right? Well, certainly Canuck fans will be hoping that you're right. Uh, coming off the great stretch run they had under Boudreaux last year, a 57-game segment of the season where they pushed themselves back into the playoff conversation when nobody thought they had any business being anywhere near close to that. And you know, ultimately, they fell short of their goal of, of getting back into the playoffs. So coming into this season, this is a, a Canucks group that you know, seems quite hungry, seems motivated to, you know, write what they see as the wrong last year in terms of missing the playoffs and the organizational slogan that they're using, not just internally, but on, on a bunch of their public branding here in Vancouver is unfinished business. Mm. And that's what the Canucks and Boudreaux, you know, they have coming into this year, the, you know, that unfinished business is, is how they're approaching this season. Boudreaux at the opening of training camp said it would be a disaster if this team didn't make the playoffs. So uh, not only are they coming in feeling like they've got a chip on their shoulder, but they're setting high expectations for themselves going into this season too. Yeah. I read that comment about him saying that it's um, it would be a disaster if they didn't make the playoffs. And so let's start with that. I mean, obviously, you know, for Bruce Boudreaux, his, you know, his resume speaks for itself. He's got the pelts on the wall. He's done this time and time again. Um, Do you think that's as much for his own personal thought process, or is that as much kind of letting everyone know, like, hey, we're not just happy that we 
improved last year. Like this is this is still a project. The players can't take a st- step back at all. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at the Canucks with where they are in terms of their salary cap situation, in terms of the age of their core players, and this is kind of a year where you expect them to take a step. You expect them to be in the playoffs. You expect some of their young players to get that level of experience late in the season and into the postseason. And it's very clear that, you know, based on some of the moves the organization made in the offseason, whether it was the signing of Ilya Mikheyev uh, out of Toronto, whether it was, you know, landing the free agent Russian forward Andre Kuzmenko, who uh, was a great player in the KHL last year. You know, the moves this organization made were not moves for the future, were not moves towards rebuilding. They were moves they want to start winning now and be a playoff team this year. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Boudreaux set that expectation coming into training camp. And, you know, you look at Boudreaux, you talk about him having the pelts on the wall. Uh, you know, certainly from a regular season perspective, his clubs make the playoffs and they do it every year. And last year was kind of an exception to that rule Mm -hmm. when he came in mid-season. So, you know, that's the expectation. That's the goal for this group. And, uh, you know, I I don't think Boudreaux's comment about it being a disaster if they miss the playoffs is only seen internally within the fan base and, and people that cover the team here in Vancouver as well. Based on the way they've approached this year, the way they've constructed the roster, and the way the players in the dressing room and the coaching staff are talking about this year, you know, it's not just Boudreaux that thinks that this would be a major disappointment if this team doesn't make the playoffs this season. And 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 how much of that is dependent on Pedersen and Hughes both taking that next step? Because I know a lot of people kind of, you know, looked at this and said, like, all right, this is this is their time to take that next level in their game. You look at, you know, these guys are 24 and 23, or maybe they're both maybe I'm getting that wrong. Maybe they're about to turn 24 and about to turn 23, but obviously these are guys who are ready to enter those prime years. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for Pedersen in particular, he had a really tough start to last season, uh, had a wrist injury that he was dealing with, was really low on confidence. And really his season didn't turn around offensively until Bruce Boudreaux arrived. And then he was scoring at a 40 goal pace, Mm -hmm. you know, from from early December onwards after Boudreaux arrived and really found his game again and has come into this year looking confident, looking, you know, physically in great shape, looking like a player that is really ready to be that consistent top-level offensive producer that the Canucks and, and their fans believe he can be. In terms of Hughes, he had another good season last year, but he's a defenseman that always wants to make improvements in his game. And coming into this year, he's talked a lot about that being on the offensive side of the game. He spent the whole summer working on his shot, uh, you know, when he, you know, met some of the media prior to the season, talked about the fact that, you know, Roman Yossi had more than 100 shots, uh, more than Hughes did last year, and how that is a target for Hughes, not only that his shot is better, but he wants to shoot the puck more and he's comparing himself to one of the top offensive defensemen in the game Mm -hmm. in Roman Yossi from the Nashville Predators. So that's the kind of, you know, expectation that Hughes sets on himself coming into each season. And yeah, absolutely. For the Canucks to take a step as a team, their young core players are going to have to take a step as a group as well. And 
Pedersen and Hughes are right at the top of that list. And then, of course, we can't go any further without talking about JT Miller and the big seven-year extension. Just in terms of settling that, do you think that that also is a sign to him and everyone else? Like, hey, we're, we're building for something here, and now we believe in what's going on. Yeah, it was something they had to get sorted out before coming into the year because JT Miller's name had been in trade speculation here in Vancouver for nearly a calendar year mm-hmm. uh, prior to the extension, you know, being signed late in the off season, and you know Miller had to answer questions about it all to, all the time. You know, organizational stakeholders had to answer questions about it all the time, and and that would have been a big distraction and a serious talking point coming into the season if they didn't have their leading scorer from last year their 99 point man locked up uh to an extension going into the final year of his deal that could have potentially seen him become a pending on or could have seen him become an unrestricted free agent um you know going into next summer so you know for the short term it's important that they got him locked up for the longer term there have been some criticisms here in vancouver of signing a player you know, that's around 30 years old to such a long extension. But, you know, as this group enters a phase where they see themselves taking big steps on the ice in the next few years, it's hard to imagine that they'll be able to do that or would have been able to do that without JT Miller as a part of this group after what he accomplished last year. Brock Besser said on a podcast a couple weeks ago that he quote unquote sucked last year. Um, you know, and he seemed to be having a laugh with that, but I I feel like he is a guy who is entering this year with some, uh, as you alluded to unfinished business. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a pity, uh, that that Besser suffered a a hand injury during training camp. That's going to mean that he won't start the year. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see exactly when they get him back into the lineup. But, uh, the initial projection was that it was a three to four week injury. So, you know, you, you project that out based on when he suffered the injury at training camp. And it's likely that he would miss, you know, somewhere between five to seven games to start the year. And, you know, it's been a a really tough go for Brock Besser of late in terms of adversity, both on the ice and in his personal life, uh, you know, having an injury coming into this year, uh, his father Duke passed away Mm -hmm. over the summer after a lengthy battle with a, a variety of illnesses that Besser has you know, been public about the fact, you know, caused him to be distracted last season in terms of putting his full focus on hockey because of, you know, knowing that his dad was was ailing at home in Minnesota and not being able to be around and, and be a help to the family. So, you know, it's another bit of adversity for Brock Besser that, that he won't be able to start the year. But you're right, coming into this season, he's talked about wanting to finally get to that 30-goal plateau that, has eluded him to this point in large part because of injuries he's faced. And, you know, even to the point that when he met with media at training camp and he was asked, is this the year you'll get 30 goals? He said, yes, absolutely. This is the year. That's all I have to say. This is going to be the year. Uh, We'll see in the end if it is the year because uh, his season is going to be starting later than he would have expected. And, you know, he won't have had a chance to play in any preseason games by the time the ice that's a sort of a disappointing thing for the Canucks, certainly a disappointing thing for Besser, but it's just another thing that I'm sure will add 
uh, fuel to his motivational fire to come in and prove people wrong once he is able to get into the lineup. I want to ask you about the the netminders and my my first reaction, and then I can point to the situation right here in San Jose and say, well, James Reimer's in this, in a similar boat. You look at that, Thatcher Demko. He's not getting any younger, but at the same time, I, I mean, there's a there's clearly a, a well known ability and established goalie who knows who he knows how to get the job done. Yeah, and the Canucks uh, last year in the second half with their push back up the standings relied heavily on Thatcher Demko, and he was tremendous for them. But he played a lot, and it's very likely that he'll play a lot again this year because over the past couple of years he's had veteran backup goaltenders in Braden Holtby and Yaroslav Halak. This year, Spencer Martin, who was their mm-hmm. uh, fifth string goalie going into last season but won the AHL starting job, uh, is going to be their backup goaltender. He had to play uh, you know, had a limited showing at the NHL last year, at the NHL level last year when you know the, the Canucks goaltenders went through some injury issues and COVID issues and Martin had to play and he played really well and essentially earned himself the opportunity to be the backup goaltender this year. But that said, he's not very experienced at the NHL level. You know, he hasn't even played a dozen games in the league and there's going to be so much pressure on this group to have success and to have success early that if they don't have a strong start to the year and they find themselves in a situation like last year again, where they have to try and make up ground in the standings, then Thatcher Demko is going to play and, and he might as well play every single night. But, you know, in terms of looking at this group and what they might be able to accomplish and, and trying to assess, you know, where's their forward group? How are they going to be able to produce? What about their defense? You know, where do they stack up in the Pacific division? Thatcher Demko is not a worry for the Canucks. You know, you could argue he's the best goaltender in the Pacific Division going into the season. I think Jacob Markstrom might have something to say about that. But, um, you know, the one area that the Canucks are 100% solid is in the crease with Thatcher Demko, assuming that he can stay healthy. And then in front of him, they'll want to be better defensively this year so that they don't have to rely on him to be as good as he was as often as he was last year. Now, let's look at what, your opinion is because obviously you you've watched a lot of hockey you saw the improvement over last year but you know that this obviously doesn't occur in in a vacuum like what what are you looking for from this team this year like you know obviously as a as a broadcaster you get hit with a dose of reality uh you see every single minute uh, that they play over the course of a year you saw stark improvement over the course of last year but you know you've been through this dance uh, a couple of times you know that there are ups and downs i mean what, do you, what are you expecting? What are you looking for? Do you have measuring sticks? How is the Brendan Batchelor 30,000-foot view looking at this Canucks team right now? <laughs> well, they should be better, and they have to be better, because as I talked about, the expectations around them are that they make the playoffs. In terms of whether that's realistic or not, I'm going to be honest. I think it's going to be tough for them. Uh, just looking at the Pacific Division, uh, the Edmonton Oilers should be right back near the top of the division like they were, you know, last year. Obviously, Calgary won the division, but the Oilers went to the conference final. They've solidified some of their goaltending. Uh, the Flames have had some notable changes up their lineup, but, uh, you know, should still be a very good team playing under Daryl Sutter and, and being defensively stingy with good goaltending. 
The LA Kings were a team that took a big step last year in making the playoffs, so it'll be interesting to see if they can build on that. And then I think it would be almost impossible for the Vegas Golden Knights to be as bad as they were last year with the number of injuries that they had, which ultimately saw them miss the playoffs. So that's four teams right there that you could pencil into a playoff spot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the maximum number of playoff teams you could have in the Pacific Division is five, and that's only if both of your wildcard teams are better than any of the teams coming out of the Central, and I don't know if that's realistic. So the way I look at it from a Canucks perspective is coming into the year, they're the underdogs, and they've got to knock off one of those four teams that I just mentioned that lots of people will pencil in above them. Could they do it? Certainly they could. Uh, we saw Vegas miss the playoffs last year, and you know once once you start playing the game, certainly anything can happen. But I think this is a group that has to take a big step, has to continue to build on what they did under Boudreaux down the stretch last year, and then probably needs some luck too in terms of not having injury issues and finding a way to play consistently and getting out to a good start so they're not chasing in terms of a playoff spot. And then maybe one of those other teams that I mentioned in this division stumbling or, or having issues of their own. Um, so, you know, if you ask me right now whether I had to say if the Canucks will be a playoff team or not, I honestly couldn't tell you because I think it's, it's that fine a margin in this division. But with the pieces they've brought in, with the players they have in their core group, they should at least give themselves a chance and then all of those other factors factors will determine whether they're playing into mid-April and, and potentially May or not. Brendan, always appreciate your time, man. Looking forward to listening to your broadcast, and we'll talk again soon. All right, man? Sounds good. Thanks, Ted. Again, that was Brendan Batchelor, the radio play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Whitecaps, joining us here on the Sharks Audio Network. From there, let's go to the Knights. They got a taste of NHL reality as they missed the playoffs for the first time ever in the history of their franchise last year, finishing up 43-31-8, fourth in the Pacific. To me, this is a team that has a very high ceiling, but also a lot of unknowns. For more on the Knights, we are now joined by Jesse Granger, who covers the Knights for The Athletic. Jesse, what's going on, man? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing very well, man. I am uh, very much excited for hockey to be back in our lives, and I think... You know, I've noticed this from the Sharks camps when watching camps from around uh, the league. Everybody seems to be in a good mood because it's relatively back to normal, which, Jesse, I take to mean that they're happy that guys like you and I can once again get right in their face and, you know, just have microphones shoved an inch away from their nose. And they're like, yes, this, this is what I want in my life. Yeah, uh, uh, Bruce Cassidy had them doing quite a bit of uh, bag skating at the end of practice today. They were still out of breath and we were already uh, asking them questions about the power play and, and how they thought they were going to play on their offhand. I'm sure they're thrilled with that. <laughs> but but seriously, though, it is like, yeah, they're probably not thrilled with us coming in there. But at the same time, um, it's nice to have conversations with these guys like actual human beings and just right. kind of talk rather than you get one question in a presser at a mic, whether it's on Zoom or, or at a podium. Um, it is. I do think it's better. It, it may not be the greatest for them to let us in the room, but I, I do think that the the content is better and, and we are able to get across um, what's happening on the ice better when we can just talk to these guys. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just there's just so much you can read off body language and facial you know, stuff that's just whether or not you're reporting it or whether or not it's even in the context of your report, you just get a better vibe. You get a sense of what's going on. You get, you know, there, there's a lot that is unsaid or that you can read from a person when you're not you know, dealing with them in a press conference setting, which I, you know, I guess I'll go from there. You know, how do you feel about this Vegas team right now? Because I, I look at them as, 
having a high ceiling, but of course dominated by many unknowns, particularly the the net mining situation. Yeah, I think this is definitely, I mean, obviously the first year we had no idea what was going to happen with this team, but since then, this is probably the 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 most uh, question marks they've had on this team. It's probably the the least I've felt confident about predicting what's going to happen. Like you say, they, they do have a high ceiling. I mean, this team has elite players in bunches and they've got them at every position except for goaltending. Um, the question is, how is that goaltending going to, going to hold up? How are the injuries going to hold up? This is a team that was severely hampered by injuries last year. And I don't think you can just chalk that up to bad luck. I think we're, we're going to see if this team can stay healthy. Um, and, and also there's a lot of new pieces that haven't played together. Um, they've obviously made a lot of moves and because of all the injuries, we haven't seen how they work together. So there are a lot of question marks around this team. I think outside of Vegas, I think the the expectations maybe have lowered for this team. I think you see some rankings around the league. They've got them somewhere between 10 and 15, whereas this team was previously thought of as a top five team inside the room. The expectations have not gone down at all. They are still expecting to contend for a Stanley cup. So let's go to the goaltending then. Obviously, in San Jose, we saw Aiden Hill a bunch last year. And, you know, I got to admit, I liked what I saw from him, especially as he got deeper into the year. And, in fact, right before his year ended, most of his starts was like two goals against, two goals against, maybe one three-goal against, and then a shutout, and then a two-goal against, and a two-goal against. And it looked like he was really rounding into form, and then injury set in. But, again, that's kind of been the, you know, talk about him through his career is dealing with injury. But, he, I mean, for the modern body type, He's got it in spades. Yeah, I mean, he's a big guy. He reads the play well. I from just from watching it and hearing camp, he he did have a rough night in the preseason against San Jose the other night, giving up seven. It was funny. I was talking to him after the game. The seventh goal bounced off of the glass and then <laughs> off of the top of the net. And he's like, "Yeah, man, like I've never had that happen in my entire life." So of course, it was the seventh goal I gave up. Um, it was it was a rough night, but outside of that, he's looked good. I think with Hill, it's going to be interesting. Um, San Jose's defense was better last year, um, but still not a great defense. And obviously, in Arizona, he played behind a a poor defense. So mm -hmm. um, it's tough to judge goalies sometimes. I mean, we've seen John Gibson in Anaheim struggle behind a bad team, and we all know that John Gibson is, is a very good goalie. So um, it's going to be interesting to see, can the Golden Knights play Bruce Cassidy's defense? He, he's been tops in the league or close to it pretty much every year in Boston. They've got good defensemen. If they can play that good a defense, what does Aiden Hill look like behind it? Um, I think this, this system they're going to play under Bruce Cassidy is very goalie friendly. I think they're going to get the most out of these goalies, but um, they've none of them have been the guy and being the guy is a totally different thing than coming in and playing here and there. And, and, one of these guys, whoever it is, Logan Thompson, Aiden Hill, or maybe Loren Versois, who hasn't played yet because he's coming off offseason surgery. Um, yeah. One of them is going to have to step up and do something that they've never done before. And with when, when there is that situation, there's always some unknown and some uncertainty. Has Cassidy alluded to just kind of riding the hot hand or going 50-50 or is he not, you know, played that or tipped that card yet? Yeah, he hasn't really tipped the card. Um, I The sense I get is this is Logan Thompson's job to lose, but when I say it's his job, I don't expect it to be. This isn't Marc-Andre Fleury. He's not mm -hmm. going to play 60 games like the Golden Knights have used to are used to getting from their starting goalie. I do think it's going to be more of a hot hand. He has said that um, Cassidy has said that he doesn't think we can learn who the best goalie is, who the number one guy is in a span of two weeks for camp and preseason. So this is going to be a competition that goes well into the regular season. And I think whoever is is playing the best at the moment is going to be the guy. And, and maybe that's a season long thing. Maybe it's a month here, a month there. Um, I think they have three goalies who are relatively equal in terms of what they've proven at the league. I think there's a little more unknown with Logan Thompson, who's the new guy, but um, he, he's, he's probably got the highest ceiling of the bunch just because we haven't seen too much of him. But I think they're, they're all going to get to see action in Vegas this year for sure. 
In terms of, you know, you brought up the name Flurry. Is that viewed as a mistake in the long time? Because I, I always thought it was. To me, I thought make sacrifices elsewhere. That's the cornerstone of the franchise. Obviously, it's above my pay grade to say that. But in, in my mind, that one still feels like a mistake. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do think it was a mistake. I think that when I think they, they, it was going to be tough to have him and Robin Leonard, right? Because that's $12 million um, in goaltending for and, and, and every night half of that is sitting on the bench and not helping you and a team that has, needs every dollar they can get. Um, I think it's tough, but I think the, the the decision to bring Leonard in when 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 they did, um, I I liked the 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 risk to take Leonard on. I think that the fact that he had been a free agent three years in a row and no team had signed him, I think Robin Leonard is a top ten goalie in the NHL, and if I, I totally understand why a team would want to take a chance on him. Um, it was it was a very high risk, low. I mean, sorry, high reward, low risk situation. But I just didn't think the Golden Knights were the team that should have done it. They had Mark Andre Fleury. He was the guy. He has been the guy. He was the anchor of this team. He's the cornerstone of the franchise. He's led them to everything that they've done. I didn't think the Golden Knights should have been the team. I do think Robin Leonard is an excellent goalie, and when he is healthy, he's going to be back to being himself. But um, it just, like I said, I think the Golden Knights already had a goalie. It is interesting to look at it, and obviously, you know, hindsight, you know, is is twenty twenty, right. if not better. But to me, that's just the one that, you know, you have something that's a known entity. I mean, you can make the compare comparisons of how things have gone for Montreal since they were in the Stanley Cup final, and they, you know, have not had their their guy. And you know, that's obviously different circumstances. But um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you think you have that next man. I mean. I could talk about LA as well. Like suddenly they thought they were moving on from Jonathan quick until Jonathan quick looked like Jonathan quick of 2014 last year. And it was kind of like, huh, well, that's interesting. Uh, but we could probably do this goalie thing for uh, quite some time. Um, you know, Bruce Cassidy, this is, you know, I, I feel like that was a coup that he ended up being available, <laughs> but you know, how, how is he viewing everything right now? Like he's to me, he's a very interesting character. He is. I, I'll be honest, from my perspective, uh, I absolutely love Bruce Cassidy. He loves to get into the details. He will, he will break down systems. He will really get into the nitty gritty minutia of hockey, which um, as a writer, I'm a big fan of mm -hmm. um, talking to the players. They really are, are receptive to, to the system he's brought in. They've all talked about how great um, they've, they've installed the system, how easy it's been to understand they're, they're making a pretty drastic change. The golden Knights have played man to man defense for basically the entirety of their five years. Um, this year, that's going to change. They, they're going to play more of a zone concept where they don't chase guys around the zone. They kind of sit in a shell, protect the inside of the ice. Um, that's why I was kind of mentioning it. I think it's a goalie friendly system. I think mm -hmm. it allows more shots from the outside. It doesn't allow rebound chances, but Boston did it to a T. I mean, the, those Bruins teams were as good defensively as you can possibly ask for the last three or four years under Cassidy. They ran that system so perfectly. And when you run it that way, it's very easy for your goalies and you're not going to give up a lot of goals. The problem is, can this Golden Knights team that has never run it, run it like this Bruins did? Um, that, that they, they had been running it for years. Those guys had grown up in that system. Um, now you've got a veteran team that has run something different and they're going to have to change it. It's going to be a challenge. Um, I think we've seen in the preseason, we've seen what it looks like when they run it well. And there's basically they, the goalie gives up one goal and you don't even remember him making a save that night. Um, it makes things easy. And we've seen what happens like the other night against San Jose, when maybe the communication, when you play zone defense, it takes so much communication because you're passing guys off from teammate to teammate. The communication has got to be perfect. And when it isn't, there are major breakdowns. So it's going to be interesting to see. Um, I think there's the potential for this team to be very good defensively under Bruce Cassidy, but it, there, it may be a learning curve.
Can Cassidy maximize a healthy Jack Eichel? I do think he will. Um, that's one of the things when, whenever you talk to Cassidy about Eichel, it's always about how he can get him to the next level. Um, he, he obviously Eichel is elite offensively. And to be honest in camp and preseason, he looks like he might even be on another level than I've ever seen. Um, we'll see how it translates when the games matter, but Jack Eichel is just unbelievable with the puck on his stick um, where Cassidy's focused is when the puck isn't on his stick. He wants to turn him into an elite 200 foot player. Like you saw in Boston with Bergeron and Marchand and those guys. Um, he, he says Eichel's got the physical skills, the physical capability to do just about anything you ask him on the ice. We're going to get him to do those things. And if they do um, look out everyone else, it's, it's still, we've yet to see it. Um, but I, I am very optimistic for Eichel. I think he's he's got a really big season coming up. Um, whether that translates to team success, we'll see. He is yet to be on a team that's made the playoffs. So um, still still to be seen. Yeah, I mean, judging him last year, I mean, you could tell even though he was, let's put it this way. There's a difference between being healthy and being at the top of your game. And it was clear that he was still working his way back into it last year. And I, there were some moments where I thought to myself, uh-oh, when this all clicks, Jack Eichel is going to be very, very dangerous in playing the Sharks many times a year. But, I mean, you could tell it wasn't like it was prime Jack Eichel returning to the ice initially. It took him a while to get back into his game. Not only was he 11 months, coming off of 11 months with no hockey, he was joining a new team in a new city for the first time ever. He'd never switched teams in his career. And he also played most of those games with a broken thumb. I mean, he bro he blocked a shot with his hand early in his uh, season with the Golden Knights, and he wasn't taking face-offs for a long time because of it. Um, and then even after that, it's his shot is his biggest weapon, and um, anyone that's played with a broken thumb knows it's hard to shoot. So um, that was definitely – and he still was the, the Golden Knights' leading scorer during that span. That's I mean, he's just really, really talented hockey player. Um, I expect him – he's, he's going to have a lot more talent around him. That was the other thing is – the Golden Knights were so injured that the expectation was for him to come into Vegas and have a bunch of talent that he didn't have in Buffalo. And all those players were hurt. So he ended up playing with guys that usually play third, fourth line minutes. Um, this year, they've got him lined up with Phil Kessel and Jonathan mm -hmm. Marsh. Or so I'm sorry, Phil Kessel and Riley Smith to start the year. Two really talented offensive players. Um, I, I expect, like I said, I expect a big season out of Jack Eichel. And what about Phil Kessel? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, he's it, I think signing him for one point five million was a very uh, low risk gamble by the Golden Knights. And, and maybe he'll score 20 goals. I think if you play him on the top line with Jack Eichel, I don't know how long that lasts, just because I don't know if Phil Kessel at this point in his career at 35 is built to play 18, 19, 20 minutes a game against the top opposing line. Um, we'll see. He, the, the line has looked very good. He's had great chemistry with Eichel in preseason. We'll see if that lasts. But regardless of, of what he does at five on five, they may have to lessen that role there. But I do expect him to be a big part of the power play. I think the Golden Knights power play has been horrendous for the last couple of years. That was a big reason why they ended up moving on from Pete DeBoer was they just couldn't figure out the power play. And mm -hmm. you look at the, the players on the ice and you say this team should be at least league average power play, if not better. So um, Bruce Cass is a big power play guy. He puts a lot of emphasis on it. He ran it in Boston. He's he's excited to see what he can do here in Vegas. I think Phil Kessel is going to be a big part of them trying to turn that power play around. Small sample size, but is he pretty entertaining to cover so far? He's a lot of fun. You know, Phil, if, if you put a mic in front of him and you ask him serious hockey questions, he's he's kind of just going to give you the cliche answers. But if you just talk to Phil Kessel about anything else, he is about as interesting as you could possibly get. I mean, I, I actually I'm writing a story right now as we speak about uh, where the Golden Knights sit in the locker room and, and why they like their seat. And everyone that sits near Kessel, that's the first thing they say is, well, I get to sit next to Phil Kessel and that's super entertaining. So uh, that's my favorite spot, part about where I sit.
Is, is there any reference to how much uh, cola he's drinking or his uh, Frappuccino <laughs> orders? Yeah, I, I haven't heard that yet, but I will say that the first time I saw Phil Kessel was uh, here in Vegas was at the charity golf tournament that they did. And it was at like 930 in the morning. They were about to tee off and they called Phil Kessel's name to come out and he was already uh, drinking some cola. So <laughs> that's that's Phil. I, I love that this is not hyperbole when we talk about him like this is just his reality. I feel, I feel like uh, he, he is, uh, you know, truly idiosyncratic in the best possible way. Uh, last question for you. What's your biggest question beyond the goalie situation? Like something else that's standing out of the front of your mind that you're waiting to see through games one to 20, I guess. For me, it's Mark Stone. Um, to me, the Golden Knights, if Mark Stone is a plus Mark Stone, what he can be peak Mark Stone. This is a Stanley cup contender still, um, even with the goalie situation, because I think the defense can be good enough to make them their jobs easier. I think Jack Eichel is going to be elite. I think they've got deep enough forwards to me. If Mark Stone is the Selkie candidate terror in the neutral zone, mm -hmm. still creating offensively, I think he's going to play on a different line than Eichel that gives them two just terrifying lines to play against. But there's a major question mark. I mean, the, he had back surgery this off season. We all know hockey Back injuries are terrifying in this sport. Um, he hasn't looked himself, but he's still getting his timing back. He's he's played in one preseason game. He's finally got the no contact jersey off. He's finally a full participant. Um, to me, that is the biggest question, maybe even more so than the goaltending is Mark Stone's health. And can he get back to being the player he was before the back surgery, before the back injuries? Um, I'm, I'm optimistic talking with Stone. He seems optimistic about it. Um, he feels a lot better. He's mentioned that the nerve pain is that he had last year is, is completely gone. Um, it's just about getting his timing back. But yeah, to me, to me, that's the, the, the hinge that this golden Knights season will swing on is can Mark stone be himself. Jesse, fantastic work, man. I appreciate you coming on and I hope I can bug you again for an interview soon. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me again. That was Jesse Granger of the athletic breaking things down on where Vegas is heading into this 2022, 2023 campaign. You know, we went from fifth in Vancouver to fourth in Vegas, so let's go up to the top of the division before we look lower. That brings us to the team that placed third in the Pacific, the LA Kings. They were 44, 27, and 11. They lost to the Edmonton Oilers in the first round of the playoffs, but they did take a big step forward. But of course, was that a little ahead of schedule, and can they expect to repeat that success again this year? For more, we are now joined by the TV color commentator for the LA Kings. It is Jim Fox. Jim, what's going on, man? How are you doing? Well, hanging in there, getting ready for the season, uh, cranking it up, and uh, should be uh, <laughs> right around the corner. Yeah, man, it's it's fun, and just the fact that we are relatively back to normal, being in the locker room with the guys, being able to be up close and personal with them, and we haven't had it, you know, it's normal to start a season going back to since September of 2019, essentially, and it finally, you know, it finally feels like we're, we're here, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like every single team I've seen with the different check-ins from camps around the league, everybody seems to be in a better mood. Now, obviously, it's because we're sticking a microphone in their face again. But no, I mean, I think you can tell that it, the normalcy is appreciated. Yeah, I think if you ask anyone, certainly in our job, you know what, to, to actually sit and converse face-to-face. -face. Yeah. And, you know, you, you want to ask the questions. You do ask the questions. But then you can get some background information. You can... You know, not off the record stuff, just it's more of a conversation. And then I think that leads everyone to being more comfortable. And then when you're comfortable, you know, the players share more than they, it just, the, the feeling is much better to be there, uh, to be able to, to go in depth uh, with, with a player, you know, usually, you know, in the last couple of years on the Zoom calls, 
you know, you can ask a couple of questions, but you're just looking to, for the meat. You don't want to, you don't want to take up too much time for now. You can, after practice, you can sit with a guy for five minutes for yeah. and really hash things out. And I think that's really important. No, it is. And it's, you know, it's great to have that. And, you know, we hope that it continues to trend in the right direction. And I would say that is a similar thing that I would imagine you're thinking about with the Kings. You want this to continue trending in the right direction. You know, it's really interesting to juxtapose where the Sharks, Kings, and Ducks, you know, the three California powers for so long, they're not all on parallel paths, but they're all on the same freeway right now. And the Kings are maybe in the lead of getting their way back into it. Um, you know, 30,000 foot view as you looked to getting to the first round of the playoffs last year, losing to a team that was very good, made it to the conference finals. I don't think there's any shame in that, but I always chalk it up to my naivety. I would say that from where the Kings had been, that is a successful season. Todd McClellan might look at me and say, Ted, you're crazy. So, I mean, what was last year deemed successful in your eye? Yeah, I think it was. I think that certainly once you get to a playoff round and you get to a seventh game and you know, you have those hopes and, you know, with one bounce or one great play or one stop, you can end up winning that game. Unfortunately for the Kings, they could not do that against the others. But for the most part, I think that most people following the team thought it was at least one year ahead of schedule as far as making the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And then I think right now, where we look from the big picture, you know, I'm not going to get into uh, wins and points and placing and all that, but I do expect the Kings to get better now for the next five or six years. You know, each year incrementally getting better and better and better with the younger players. They're going to take over sooner or later. Mm -hmm. I have to take over. You know, Andre Kopitar can't lead this team in scoring every year. You know, someone has to take over. And I, I just see that happening now because of the pool of prospects, the young pros they have, and the veteran leadership they have. I expect this group, they may have, have less points this year than they did last year, but I do expect them to be a better team this year than the following year and keep going for five or six years. Well, you know, in comparing the California teams, you know, a year ago, everybody was saying, can Jonathan Quick get it back? And he most definitely did. And now that puts even more pressure on him to repeat it. Uh, but, you know, the guy's a, a legend for a reason. It's interesting. People are having that same talk about John Gibson in, in Anaheim, even though he's a little bit on the younger side, but people are doing that same thing. It's like, oh, can he get back to what he was? Because, you know, th this, this is the way we compare all these teams. And uh, while that conversation is happening, what, what are your expectations of Quick this year? I mean, again, he's, yeah. he's a legend for a reason. You know, it's, it is always, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, having followed his entire career and then, you know, Hans Smythe winner, two times Stanley Cup champion, uh, I think he's going to be a Hall of Famer. That's my opinion. Uh, I think it's difficult to talk about the transition phase now because of the respect that I have for Jonathan in his career, uh, the competitive nature that he brings every night. But there is, I'll answer it this way. How, is, how about this? If you're Todd McClellan, you want both guys gone and you want the hottest guy and whoever's going to get you a win that night. Mm -hmm. If you're Rob Blake, the GM, I think you're, you're hoping that Cal Peterson takes the next step because he would be the guy in line for succession. And there was the investment. Yeah. You know, he, he's starting out a three-year deal at 5 million a year. So that's, you know, that's not top big, big dollars, but that's number one dollars. And they could so, sign me with that money. Yeah, there you go. I'd take it, but I, you know, I don't want to take a pay cut. Well, other than that, <laughs> UTV uh, guys, <laughs> it's, it's just where, you know, Jonathan really, he was fine last year. 
and they got better. Then mm -hmm. he got into the playoffs. By the playoffs, he was the number one guy. But what they would hope, they being the Kings, a bigger picture again, they would hope that Cal Peterson gets to a point where I'm not saying he's going to steal the net. No way. That's not going to happen because Jonathan will have something to say about that. But maybe play more games than Jonathan Quick. And I think that's, you know, from a bigger picture. Now, if Jonathan can, comes in and like he did last year and he wins the job, there you go. But bigger picture, looking down the road. Again, as a coach, you want to win now. As a GM, you want to win now, but you have that long-term range in your eyesight. And uh, they want Cal to, to become the number one guy sooner or later. Yeah, and I mean, if they both play like it this year, it's a good problem to have. <laughs> no question. And I think last year, at least, one small part for Jonathan was that he was not overworked early last year. And I really think that allowed him to settle into his game. And then, you know, having watched him in games and then watching him in practice, the ex explosiveness that has always been in Jonathan's game is still there. There's yeah. no question. He's not slowed down. He's getting from post to post. I mean, that's not an issue. So, uh, you know, I know goaltenders, you know, they can tend to go deep and long and maybe a little bit older than most positions. And so uh, you have that battle with two guys. That's a real good position to be in. We talk about the, you know, the old guard, as it were, and he's not that old by any means. But Drew Doughty, I mean, how much is it? Is it just health? I mean, I know that's an oversimplification for him, but, you know, it, I feel like that's that's the number one priority. If he can stay healthy, I feel like Drew Doughty can be Drew, Drew Doughty. Yeah, I think a couple of years ago, he had his first down year. And just from having watched him, I felt for the first time in his career, you know, the Kings were in a rebuild. And he was trying to, you know, he was trying to do everything. He was trying to do too much. And then he also had mentor as part of his title, which I don't think he ever had before. And I think that kind of knocked him off his game a little bit. Mm-hmm. Last year, there was a complete rebound, complete rebound. Now, at the end, you know, he hurt himself early with a knee, hurt later with a wrist near the end of the year. And then even go back to the previous year, I think he had a rebound to his career after a down season. So he is the guy, you know, at 25 minutes a night that you can sit and you get into the playoffs, you can go 30 minutes a night. He is the guy that sets the tone. Uh, he does. And I think when I look at the Kings and how they're building the defense core right now, I think everyone can learn from Drew because – you know, the excitement comes from producing points, but the effectiveness comes from shutting people down. And Drew takes a lot of pride in that part of shutting guys down. And if you have the skill and you have the talent to offensively create, you go ahead and do it. But the mindset that Drew Doughty has, shut down first. I look at that top line, Kopitar, Kempe, and Fiala, the new addition. That's a formidable line. That's, that, that, that's a lot of offensive power right there. Now, I would expect that Kevin Fiala will lead the Kings in scoring. Points, goals, I would just expect that. I'm not taking anything away from Kopitar, who's done it every year, except one since he's been here. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, Adrian Kempe having a breakout year last year. So you just keep those things going. But what Fiala brings, at least he started the season so far playing with Kopitar. Andre really has never had a left winger that is known as a point producer. He really hasn't had that. Now you have Kempe on the right, Fiala on the left. Uh, I've watched them a little bit here in training camp, obviously, and in the preseason games. Their speed on attack is a different level than the Kings have seen. And that's because of the addition of Fiala. He's the new guy on the block. And then when he gets down in tight, Fiala's really showing you something. Of course, you have to watch him day after day. His puck protection skills, how he swivels his feet around and his body around to make sure he's protecting the puck. 
At the same time, he keeps his hands free to use quick hands and in tight. Uh, it's going to be something they're going to be counted on. And then hopefully, hopefully for the Kings, get the power play on track. And that's another area where Fiala can really help. How much can we derive from the preseason of any team? Because I, I mean, you went through it as a player. You understand. And I, what do you look for? I mean, just having been through it yourself, are there, is it just seeing that guys are in shape? Because when you watch that much talent, in, it's not that these aren't competitive games, but it's still not the same thing as a regular season game. We still know there's experiments happening. They're trying things. What, what are you trying to take away from these preseason games? Well, I'm looking mostly at the prospects. So I'm looking at the guys that, you know, and we had a big turnaround last year because of injuries, especially back on the blue line. Mm -hmm. But for instance, a Jordan Spence who came in last year, you know, his first year pro started in the American Hockey League, ended up in the playing in the playoffs as a regular D guy. I'm just looking to see if he picks up where he left off. And I'm seeing that from him. Uh, Quentin Byfield, of course, a lot of attention on him. Uh, for Quentin right now, it's about slowing down his game. Um, reading plays as opposed to just attacking because at times I mean, this kid he is a physical specimen by feel i mean you know he's six four six five he's going to be 225 before he's done but his hands and feet are quick mm -hmm. i'm talking about elite quickness but right now he's, he's kind of going a million miles an hour so see if he can <laughs> kind of settle his game down and read it a little bit better so those are what i those, those are the types of things i'm looking for I, I know when Kopi's on the ice and he's not, you know, he's just, he's getting it done. I know that. A lot of the guys are like that, that they're going to get to it. They're, they're, they're getting their internal clocks ready for that drop of the puck for the first regular season game. But uh, right now for me, it's mostly about prospects. And it's, you know, seeing that maybe they can pick up at the point in which they were at their top last year. They're not going to, you know, slide back down. They can come right back in with a little bit more experience, a little bit better understanding, and pick up right there. What about Trevor Moore? Uh, career highs in a number of categories last year, and now a guy like Fiala comes in. Does that take offensive weight off of him, or does it add to? Does it open up opportunities now? Well, I think with uh, right now, uh, Victor Arvidsson is not skating with the team. He probably will be ready right at opening night. He had that back surgery in the offseason, mm -hmm. maybe the, you know, the first week of the season. But it was Deneau with Moore and Arvidsson last year. I expect Trevor Moore, and that's the first time in Trevor's career, I think he was ever placed on a line. So for the Kings, that was their second line, mm -hmm. second offensive production line. And that's the first time in his career, I think he had that role. And you know what? I think there was a lot of doubting and there still will be this year, but every, I swear, I swear to every game, he just played well. He had a good game. You know, he has the, that intensity as part of his game, always on the puck, hounding down the puck. But then he added, you know, a little bit of offensive creativity. Mm -hmm. He scored some uh, breakaway goals last year that were just incredible receptions of passes, great shots, good release. So I don't think his role is going to change all that much, um, regardless of whether Fiala comes in. Trevor really didn't play on the power play. So that certainly will be where Kevin Fiala jumps in and takes someone's spot from last year because he wasn't here last year. Yeah. He's going to take someone's spot on the power play. Trevor Moore really wasn't on the first power play or that top group of guys on the power play. So I really don't think it's going to affect his, his role. How are you handicapping this division right now? I, you know, I look at the, 
two teams from Alberta. Uh, I look at a toss-up between them. I, I'll obviously look at the Kings, you know, for a reason. Vegas is the big, big question mark to me because they have a, a very high ceiling, but that, you know, that remains to be seen what they can achieve. Vancouver, very interesting. We know um, the Boost Boudreaux effect last year, what that happened. Um, you know, the Sharks and the Ducks, I think they'll be looking to take steps forward at, at the same time. I, but I, this, you know, I, wide open is the way I've heard a lot of people talk about it. And I, you know, last year the standing surprised me, and I would not be surprised if the standing surprised me again this year. Yeah, I think the one, the wild card certainly is Vegas because their roster is stacked, but then the goaltending is an issue now. Yeah. They're really starting the season without a proven number one guy. And, you know, can they outscore their problems or can they tighten it up and yeah. really make it easier on the goaltenders? If you were to put, you know, a normal, healthy Robin Lantern in there, then I think you're considering Vegas as pretty much a playoff team. Uh, of course, they struggled last year in a lot of different areas. Goaltending was one of them for mm -hmm. sure. But uh, you know, when you look at their defense core and you look up front, they have some you know, they have some world class players there. With you know, that's that's something that's going to be contended with. I just think, no matter how it's done, I think the Pacific this year have to find a way to get four teams in. They can't do the five three split anymore. They got to find a way to get four teams in uh, compared to the Central. Uh, and if that's the case, then I think the Kings are right there. Uh, I, I, I've listened to a lot of people talk about the Pacific and it might be the most interesting division this year because of all the points you brought up where, you know, you have some teams that are ready to take strides. Yeah. You know, can Vancouver, I mean, they're 56 games under Boudreaux last year, you know, no question. Of yeah. playoff team. You know, they just started so far behind the eight ball. Um, Vegas will be strong again, wild card. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Then, then you have, like you said, Anaheim and the Sharks, and they're going to get better too. It's not, you know, so it's going to be a much a much more competitive division than I think we saw last year. And again, the big fight for everyone is to get four teams in the playoffs and not just three. What's your big question for the Kings right now? Like what's at the top of your mind that you yeah. need answered? It, it's just, no question to me, it's power play. Uh, not only the percentage last year, but they had opportunities in numerous games to really win a game late with a power play. And I'll be honest, there were some games they didn't even come close. And they were struggling so much in that area. So if they could find a way to get back to the middle of the pack and get those timely goals, because for the most part last year, the Kings were known as structure, right? Just playing their system, not getting outside of it, everyone together. Now, if they can add that little bit extra on the power play, which really did not work at all last year, mm -hmm. Kelly has to improve too. There's no question. So special teams, but to me, I think the focus always goes to the power play more than the penalty kill. Uh, but with the addition of Fiala, maybe some differences. Jim Hiller was hired as an assistant coach, you know, to really oversee that area. Although Tom McClellan has told us many times this year already, it's it's a, it's a coaching staff that does everything. But you know, Jim Hiller has had some experience with other NHL teams where he was in control of the power play, and that'll be a big focus point for him this year to turn that thing around. Jim, always a pleasure, my friend. It's the best time of the year. We're about to get started. Can't wait to see you guys here in San Jose, and we'll talk soon. All right, man? All right, Ted. Thank you. Appreciate it. Again, that is Jim Fox, the TV color commentator for the LA Kings, who's been joining us here on the Sharks Audio Network. Let's move up one spot to the second place team in the Pacific last year, the Edmonton Oilers, 
who lost to the eventual champions of the Stanley Cup, the Colorado Avalanche, in the Western Conference Finals. Let's dig deep on the Oilers with Bob Stoffer, the radio color commentator for Edmonton. Bob, what's going on, man? How are you doing? Uh, not bad. I mean, we got five games in eight days to start the preseason, so uh, we're kind of in the middle of that right now. A uh, couple road games. Uh, it's never easy flying uh, for four more days. It's not easy flying from Canada to the United States because they've changed the the uh, restrictions. Yeah, in Canada, starting that we've been living with for the last year plus, but. Uh, uh, that starts October the 1st, but uh, the Oilers started off at home to Winnipeg on Sunday. We flew in and out of Seattle the same day on Monday and then up and back from Calgary yesterday. And then I'm doing the show each day. So <laughs> lots, lots of talk. We're back at it. There's a lot of excitement in oil country, obviously Ted based on how the Oilers did last year. Yeah. And that's what I always go to because I always, I have a bit of naivety about me and I will admit this where I will say, if you are the final four teams in the NHL, that is a successful season. But Jay Woodcroft might come up to me and say, get out of here, Ted. I don't I don't want to hear that. I mean, h- how does Jay view it? How do you view it? How does the team view what happened? Uh, last year? Well, I mean, they hadn't been in the final four since 2006. So I would say it was a successful season. Yes. Um, it was a strange year. <laughs> I mean, they were 16 and five to start the year kind of did it with smoke and mirrors like real good special teams not great five on five play then the team had a bout with covid and it picked guys off one at a time and so two or three players like calgary got it all at once and they didn't play any games yeah so the whole team went through it and nobody missed any games and they had the fewest amount of man games lost last year and the Oilers went through a stretch where they used 12 defensemen during a 15 game run and they went two eleven and two during that run and uh, and that put Dave Tippett in peril, and he ultimately was relieved of his duties with Jim Playfair and the aforementioned Jay Woodcroft came up, and, and with Dave Manson and those guys were in Bakersfield for three and a half years in the A, and they they kind of galvanized the team, like and, and the team played differently, way better five on five. The orders added Evander Kane, they added added Brett Kulak, and they were just simply a different team down the stretch. So, yeah. it you know what Ted, it was a successful year. They won the they, they won the Battle of Alberta in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal, up, you know. Up Th- that was so much fun. I mean, I understand that you know living in California, it's it's a little different. But just from the perspective of watching that battle go down, I mean that the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, it doesn't get any better. But to have something like that happening in the midst of it last year, I mean, it just it was like every time you're like, this can't get any better. It's like, oh, it's gonna get better right here. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like it was almost like a hot tub time machine with the terms yeah. of how the, the games are played. The only thing we missed were a whole ton of fights. But <laughs> I mean, I'm from Edmonton. I grew up watching it. I watched the greatest cavalcade of stars ever. Right? You know, a team with you know seven Hall of Fame players now, the highest scoring team in NHL history. And Calgary had a real good team too. And I was thinking of Greg Wyshynski for now with ESPN, and he sort of compared it. I'm a huge SEC football fan, but he compared it a bit to Alabama and Auburn. Yeah. And just, you know, that's what the rivalry's like. And he talked about, you know, the Oilers being a bit like Alabama. They're the team with the championships, sort of the, the higher pedigree, but Auburn punches above their weight class in some years. And the Flames finished ahead of Edmonton in the regular season. And, I mean, even being in the building last night, like if you had told me, the Oilers lost game one, Ted, 9-6. They were down 3-1 in game two. And I remember looking at my broadcast partner, Jack Michaels. I'm like, you know what? The Oilers could be in trouble here. And the rest of the, that way in the series, Edmonton outscored 
Calgary 18 and nine, mm-hmm. I would have never seen that happen. Like I didn't see the tournament or the series turning the way it turned. And it obviously turned into a, a paw. And what was remarkable, it was a dry settle was limping around on one leg. Darnell nurse suffered a hip flexor injury, but those are two of Edmonton's three best players. Yeah. So for that, for the orders organization, it was a big year, but they know that this year is a new and, they got to continue to grow and build out the program. Well, I mean, that's the thing is the ultimate comparison uh, in the conference final was against the eventual champions. So they saw the measuring stick up close yeah. and personal. So from the 30,000 top down view, I mean, do, do we say it's, I mean, it's never fair, but you know, I, we grew up with the 49ers in the eighties out here. It was championship or bust. And we know that mentality comes yeah. into play. Is, I mean, does, is that how Edmonton views it? Well, and, you know, the orders have their own version of the West Coast offense as well, right? So, uh, but I, I do think, I, I think the players and certainly the management coaches recognize that you don't get extra points last year because you went to the third round. Everybody is starting anew. And the players will tell you nobody's got higher expectations than they do on themselves. But this is a different team than, like, it's funny, in 16-17, Edmonton probably should have beaten Anaheim in the second round. They beat the Sharks in six in round one. They should have beaten Anaheim in the second round. You know, they lost uh, three one-goal games, and they had, at that time, $22 million worth of players. Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Jordan Everly, Milan Lucic, and Benoit Pouliot. Those guys did not score an even-strength goal in that series, mm-hmm. right? And they lost three one-goal games to Anaheim. They should have won the series. And so a lot of people had Edmonton and Ted as a big favorite the next year in 17-18, and the Oilers fell on their face. They missed the playoffs. This is a different team this year. This is actually, you know, they're, they're star players, McDavid, Drysaddle, Nurse. They're more mature. They're better players. There, There is, and I, I know we're going to get to Kane in a second, but there's better support with guys like Evander Kane and Zach Hyman. And, and mm-hmm. Nugent Hopkins is still here. And then they have some guys pushing uh, for more playing time that are homegrown products, Evan Bouchard on the back yep. and, and uh, Yamamoto up front and, and McLeod, and we'll see where Paul Yarby factors in on this as well. The orders have a way deeper club than they did that year at the start of the 17, 18 season. We'll see where it goes. They, they should be. I mean, they got to know that they're Edmonton and Calgary are their two consensus favorites in the Pacific. Ted, they got to go get it. We'll see what yeah. happens. Yeah. And I mean, Calgary right now, even though with the two big names they lost in the offseason, they brought in three really good names. It's yeah. like, I mean, the, the battles between you guys this year are going to be incredible. So we're, we're looking forward to that. So before I get to Kane, before I get to Abouchard, let's talk about Campbell. And yeah. how much pressure is there? Because uh, Listen, I mean, in, in soccer, my color commentator is a goalie. He knows as well as anyone. They don't focus on the defensive breakdowns right after a goal is scored. They zoom in on the goalie. Yeah. It's, you know... The goalie in soccer, hockey, a pitcher in baseball, three loneliest positions in sports. How much of that does Campbell feel right now? It's going to be interesting. Now, the Oilers have had success with guys that were in Toronto. It's a slightly different market. Um, <laughs> you know, Tyson Berry bounced back in Edmonton, led the NHL in scoring two years ago after being in Toronto. Cody Cece went from Toronto to Pittsburgh and had a real good second half of the season last year at the orders and ended up being an evidence top pairing uh, at a relatively fair price point as well with Darnell nurse. So, you know, Zach Hyman career high, 27 goals coming over from Toronto last year. 
and I think that that infrastructure of former Leaf players will help Jack Campbell. Yeah. The owners have also percolated uh, Stuart Skinner the last four years. They've slow played this guy. He's going to back up. There's a lot of confidence in his maturation and growth. And Ted, I'm going to spin this a little differently. Like for the last two years, the Oilers fan base had zero belief that Mike Smith was any good, except he went 923 and 915 save percentage. Right. They're pretty good numbers. Yeah. Like those are good numbers, you know, like the Sharks made it to a Stanley Cup one year with Martin Jones having not the greatest save percentage. <laughs> uh, but the problem with Mike Smith is you didn't know when he was going to break down and get hurt. And I think if you could have a 31 year old Mike Smith, Instead of a 40-year-old Mike Smith, there would have been greater confidence in the market. And that's where a 31-year-old Jack Campbell comes in. He's simply younger. He's ready to, to handle that. And I, I frankly think the Oilers have a better team mm-hmm. to support it as well. And a, and maybe a better coach team uh, with Dave Manson on the back end, a defense, you know, former defenseman that played virtually every role. So I don't think all the pressure is on Campbell. I think having the Toronto guys here is going to help him. I think being out of Toronto is going to help him a little bit. I think the fact that the team can score will help because sometimes they're going to score their way out of off nights for the goalies. Mm -hmm. And I also think Edmonton was a dramatically improved five on five team tactically under Jay Woodcroft and Dave Manson. The numbers bore that out. So that's part of the reason why I'm confident on it. Let's talk about Evander Kane as you alluded to the offense there. Now, obviously polarizing figure here in San Jose uh, for obvious reasons. But to me, when I watched Evander Kane, I always saw a guy that when he wants to, he is as yeah. dangerous a player as exists in the NHL. I mean, he can just absolutely take over a game. We saw him do it at multiple points at the highest levels last year. Suddenly, he was just doing everything you could ask him to do. I mean, what what are the expectations for him after how huge he was for Edmonton last year as soon as he started playing for him? It seems like the impact was immediate and then even more so in the playoffs. Well, it was immediate because he scored on his first shift. As an owner, this is the first shift, <laughs> yeah. And he, you know, he led the NHL in goal scoring in the playoffs. He had two hat tricks. The guy had 35 goals between the playoffs and the regular season. Oh, he, was, he was only he was only here half a year. Yeah. Um, a couple, you know, players grow and mature. Um, he he knows McDavid and Dry He's playing with two of the best players in the world. Uh, now they ended up on a line together in the playoffs because Leon was hurt, had a lower body issue. McDavid and Drysdale are going to be centering their own lines. Mm-hmm. Um, Kane's going to be fighting with Hyman to be the net front on the power play. I, I mean, I think realistically he should score at least 30 goals. And and it's also that he's in the top six. and The Oilers are not a tough team. They have a great power play. That's their intimidation mm-hmm. is don't take penalties on. But the, the thing about Kane and for that matter, Darnell Nurse, who plays in Edmonton's you know, top two, Kane is going to be in the first line with McDavid and Yamamoto to start the year, is they're top-end guys that can play physical that are playing in important roles. They're not fourth-line guys that are hammers. Yeah. So, you know, I Ted, i got to be honest. I, I don't see – if he's healthy for the year, I don't see how he doesn't score 30 goals playing. I, I'm knowing what he's capable of. I'm not going to be shocked if it's higher. I mean, yeah, he, he is, could score 40, yeah, but right. he's going to score 30 for sure. He is, uh, he's a force and, uh, yeah, you're right guys mature. I mean, I was always, you know, I looked at it as more of just, it was sad that it didn't work out here because he is a charming guy. He, you know, he's got all the superstar things going on. He's good looking. He's this goal scorer. He's, you know, he's good with the media and it's just kind of like, you know, it, was just, it just didn't work out. I mean, that's just I was, how, yeah. Ted, I was stunned how good of an interview it was. How he's well great. 
He's like great. He's, yeah. Like he's he's quite polished. Yeah. No, he's no, he's he's remarkable. And uh, you know, I hope he plays well for you guys just because that would be a better story for him. I want all athletes to have success, yeah, except I, for when they're directly playing the San Jose Sharks. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I, I kind of root for everyone. I you know, and you know, it, when you're in Edmonton and it's funny because you know, I'm still talk a lot to Tom McClellan, Jay Woodcroft. Mm-hmm. Those guys have been through San Jose. And there was a time that, I mean, the Sharks for 15 years had the best record in the National Hockey League. It just yeah. didn't translate to a Stanley Cup. And they got a lot of players that wanted to go there over the years. When you're an Edmonton and have had some of the challenges, mostly, I know people talk about the weather and playing and, and the pressure, but the biggest issue is players want to play where they can win. Mm-hmm. And for a number of years, there was a perception that that wasn't going to happen at Edmonton. And we, I mean, we had some players that the team had to sell, like Doug White and Bill Guerin, who were American guys that liked playing at Edmonton. Uh, they were good dudes, and they they were always well-received. But we, there were other scenarios where players left in not very great situations. I wasn't one of those guys cheering against those players when they went to I, – I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to see them be successful with their new teams and their families be successful. Yeah. So I'm kind of like you. We'll see how Kane does. I'd be stunned if he doesn't score 30 goals. The other guy who I really enjoyed watching his development, and I'm curious if you think it can go even beyond what we saw last year is Evan Bouchard. I mean, that guy, I you know, I, I was not expecting the season that he had, but suddenly, and this is the, the other side of success, once you have success, people wonder, can you make it more? And that's, you know, that's a new pressure that has not previously existed for him, at least in my perception in California. Yeah. So you do a lot of soccer. How important is uh, the how important are now the fullback positions in soccer compared oh. to what they were fifteen to twenty years ago? Yeah, it's no, it's, difference. Because yeah. yeah. now fullbacks attack, right? Whereas twenty years ago they were primarily defenders, and mm-hmm. now they're the transporters on the flanks. There's different ways to transition pucks in the NHL level. Whereas Darnell Nurse is a physical transporter; he skates it up the ice. Bouchard's a more like he does his game. His game's cerebral. He was 11th in the NHL last year in five-on-five even strength scoring for defensemen. Like I, I, most people would be stunned by that number. I'm here to tell you that if he takes over from the power play from Tyson Berry, his agent Jeff Jackson, who also represents Connor McDavid, Evan Bouchard is going to get paid. Like, <laughs> like realistically, I don't. If he has the Oilers' power play last three years has been first, first, and dropped to third last year. It dropped to third. Mm-hmm. It's been the best power play in the league the last three years. But David and Dry settled since the 17 and 18 start of the season, lead the NHL in points one, two. And they obviously lead the NHL in power play points one, two. And Bouchard can flat out shoot the bill. Yeah. Like he has a heavy shot. It is Tyson Berry is more of a point guard, right? Whereas mm-hmm. Evan Bouchard, he is the guy that can deliver the death knell from the point. He can shoot pucks through. Uh, goaltenders and it's it's not a matter of in if it's a matter of when he takes over the first unit power play so good on you for reckon like if that happens early in the season he could like whereas i'm modest in hey maybe 30 goals for Kane should be the expect expectation evan bouchard for me if he ends up on the first unit power play by halfway through the year i could see him being a 55 point defenseman this year yeah no that'd be huge i guess the i mean we we know about, you know, Dreisaitl and McDavid. I don't think there's a whole lot more that can be said about those two guys 
so I won't uh, I won't bore you with talking about how great they are. But I do want to know what is your big question for the team heading into the year. And this doesn't have to mean weakness. This doesn't have to mean strength. This doesn't have to mean whatever. Just what what's the big question that's standing out in your mind? Defense. Like Duncan Keith came in, and I know the analytics guys hated the trade with Chicago, but he did provide some veteran leadership and savvy. Um and was pretty good in the playoffs, and he helped bring Bouchard along last year. That was another shift that occurred when Jay Woodcroft came up to Bakersfield with Dave Manson. Is they you you know they put Keith with Bouchard, and then Kulak came in at the trade deadline from the Canadians, and he was paired with Tyson Berry. And the Oilers had three pretty good deep pairings. While well, they've lost Duncan Keith, so now they're going to rely on a kid named Philip Roberg, a first round pick, eighth overall, twenty nineteen. And I wonder if Edmonton's got enough physicality on defense. Now they do have an option, a big six foot five and a half inch left shot deep Marcus Niemelainen. He's out of Finland. He's played the last couple of years in Bakersfield. He's been up for a cup of coffee. He's a banger. He skates real good for a big man. He closes up pretty uh, quick. He's got good gap and he skates through guys when he hits them. But it's basically going to be a battle between him and Broberg for you know, a spot on the team and Broberg's the higher pick. So this is going to be, I wonder, for me, it's the, the question's going to, the orders are going to score enough. I think the question's going to be, deep, uh, you know, whether or not the defense is, and part of the reason why I'm confident is because of Dave Manson, because he's, he did a real good job in Bakersfield. He touched all the bases on it. A lot of ex NHL players get fast tracked opportunities mm-hmm. that didn't occur with Manson. He coached, you know, his kids growing up, up in Prince Albert, which is in the middle of nowhere in Canada. Then he coached the PA Raiders as an assistant coach, then an associate coach in major junior. Then he went to Bakersfield and coached four years in the minors and now on to the Oilers. And he came in as a tough guy. He played on arguably the toughest team in major junior history in Canada, the 1985 PA Raiders. Uh, I mean, his, his nickname was Charlie. Like he was one of the scariest players of all time. Came in as a tough guy, became the power play quarterback for the Blackhawks and the Oilers as a player and then reinvented himself as a shutdown defenseman. So he had every role. Yeah. That would literally be like a guy going from uh, a striker to an attacking midfielder, uh, <laughs> you know, to a fullback. In, in yeah. soccer, you know what I mean? Like, his, yeah, you know, I, and that kind of helped. That, that happened a bit with Beckenbauer as time when he kind of got moved further back, right? It was a deep lane <laughs> uh, midfielder. So, uh, you know, you look at the roles uh, with Manson and he's, that's why I'm. I, I, it's a question mark the defense, but I also think I have some confidence because I know who's coaching it. Bob, fantastic as always. Love talking to you. Can't wait for the season to get started because there's so many fun storylines going on, especially in Alberta as we all know it. But uh, really looking forward to the season. I appreciate your time, and we'll talk soon. All right, Mike Greer, former Oiler, loved here at Edmonton. Best of luck to him and the Sharks this season. That was Bob Stoffer, the radio color commentator for the Edmonton Oilers. And now let's go to the tops of the division, the Calgary Flames. Of course, they lost the Battle of Alberta, but they have reloaded in the offseason, making some big, big changes. For all the sizzle on the Flames, we are now joined by their radio play-by-play voice, Derek Wills. Derek, what's going on, man? How are you doing? Oh, just another day of uh, training camp and the preseason uh, game number five of eight for the Flames tonight as they try to figure out uh, who's going to be in their opening night lineup on October 13th versus the defending Stanley Cup champion Avalanche. So the process continues. 
Indeed it does. And, you know, before we move forward, I want to look back and just ask you, as as a broadcaster, how much fun was the Battle of Alberta? Like, I have to imagine, you know, regardless of outcome, that when you're getting ready for that series to begin, like your your personal excitement levels as a broadcaster have got to be near its peak, right? Yeah, it was an interesting season. Uh, I mean, the first Battle of Alberta in the Stanley Cup playoffs since 1991 was certainly something for the entire province, uh, and I think the entire game of hockey to get excited about. And, and unfortunately for the Flames and for their fans and for their broadcasters, that series uh, after a wild 9-6 win in game one, didn't go their way. A gentleman sweep at the hands of the Oilers. And, you know, from a, a broadcast perspective, uh, disappointing not to be uh, inside of Rogers' place uh, for the two games played uh, in Edmonton in that series. But, you know, it was, uh, it was a great series. Even though it ended in five, I would say that outside of game three, the other four games really could have gone either way. And that includes game one which the Flames wound up winning 9-6. But, you know, the, the Flames, uh, unfortunately, after being one of the best teams in the league during the regular season at building leads and holding leads, uh, just couldn't seem to, to hold a lead long enough uh, in the four games they lost versus the Oilers. Uh, uh, they had leads in, in three of those four games, two goal leads, as a matter of fact, and just uh, couldn't build on them or, or hold, hold them. So uh, in hindsight, uh, I think the team decided that they had to tweak a few things during the offseason. Uh, obviously, there were some uh, major moves out and some major moves in. But uh, as we get set for the start of the 22-23 season, the Flames feel like they're better positioned to deal with uh, an Oilers team should they meet in the Stanley Cup playoffs for a second straight season. Yeah, I you know, I look at the changes that happen in the offseason and I feel like – the. You know, this team, despite big names going out, big names come in. You got a, you know, a Gaudreau and a Kachuk going out, but you get Uberdo, Kadri, and then Weger coming in. So, I mean, take me through your mindset through in the summer. I mean, maybe you saw this coming. Maybe you didn't. It it was wild. I'm not going to lie. And I mean, you can go right back to that playoff series. As a matter of fact, go back to the start of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And uh, the Flames end up playing the Stars in the first round. They were, I would say, pretty significant favorites going into that series but thanks in large part to Jake Ottinger who was a brick wall in the stars net the series goes to overtime in a seventh and deciding game and you know one of the guys who did depart during the offseason Johnny Gaudreau was the hero scoring the overtime winner a uh, biggest goal that has been scored by someone wearing a Flames jersey probably going back to 2004 when they won in the Stanley Cup uh, or lost in the Stanley Cup final to the Lightning. So mm-hmm. then you set up the, the second round Battle of Alberta that everybody's been waiting three decades for. And like I said, you win game one, 9-6. Uh, Connor McDavid got clocked three or four times in that game. And it certainly looked at the Flames, despite kind of playing an oiler style of hockey and, and still finding a way to win game one, they were in great shape going into potentially the next six games of the series, and then they lose four straight. So uh, that was wild. And then the focus turned to unrestricted free agent Johnny Gaudreau. And I really think he was close to coming back. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, you try to kind of piece things together. And and I'm pretty sure that uh, his agent called Flames General Manager Brad Treleving on July 12th and said, we've got a deal. And then that deal some way, somehow fell apart. So July 13th rolls around. Uh, for some reason, he decides to go to Columbus and sign with the Blue Jackets. Not sure I've been able to wrap my head around that decision, uh, other than the fact that maybe they're 
uh, weren't as many teams out there offering him a contract as his agent thought there would be. But to lose Johnny Gaudreau for nothing certainly hurt. He was so much fun to watch here for eight seasons. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I got to call all but one of his regular season and playoff games. He made his NHL debut the, the year before I came playing in game number 82. So that's the only one I missed. And, you know, he was such a fun player to watch for eight years. So it hurt to lose uh, him for nothing. The Matthew Kachuk one, really interesting how it all played out because I really thought that with Kachuk saying that he wasn't open to signing a long-term extension with the Flames and with that being public and certainly no one around the league that Brad Treleving had kind of been painted into a corner. Uh, But how he was able to pull off the trade that he did, uh, bringing in Jonathan Huberdeau, and it's funny because it's almost impossible to replace a 115-point player in this league. There were three of them last season, but you lose a 115-point guy in Gaudreau and you add a 115-point guy in Huberdeau. So just getting him back for Kachuk was a win in itself, but then you had a first-pairing defenseman in Mackenzie Weger. You bring in a, a prospect that I know the Flames are excited about in Cole Schwint, and you get a first-round pick. So uh, the fact that uh, Brad Treleving was able to get as much as he did for Matthew Kachuk, I really think changed the entire offseason. It changed the uh, opinions that people had on this team, uh, no more talk about should they rebuild or retool. It's, hey, they've pushed all their chips to the middle of the table and, and they're all all in. Right. And, and certainly if they weren't at that point, they were when they, after giving Jonathan Huberdeau the biggest contract in franchise history, went out and gave uh, Nazem Kadri the second biggest contract in franchise history. And, and w- when you look at what they did during the offseason, I really think that they have the orders in mind. Because if you're going to deal with Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle as the number one, two centerman there, mm-hmm. you've got to be good down the middle. And I think the Flames are as good down the middle if you, you look at the 200-foot players they have with Elias Lindholm, Nazem Kadri, and Michael Backlund to, to go head-to-head against those two guys. So, you know, short-term, uh, I'm not sure the Flames are going to win their second state straight Pacific division title. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I just think when, when the games get hard in the playoffs, they're maybe better set up to have success this season than they were last season or have been for a number of seasons. And that's no disrespect to the players that, that left, but uh, more just a uh, tip of the cap to the players that came in. And let's, let's talk about life with Daryl Sutter. Uh, obviously Sharks fans know him well, and he had some, I mean, comments that made me smile at the start of camp here is, uh, you know, Sutter is, he is Sutter. Daryl's going to do what he does. I, I find him highly entertaining. I know not everybody shares that take, but uh, I mean, there's got to be a part of you that's getting a kick out of it, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, we get to deal with him day in, day out. And, uh, you know, I would say this, I get to learn from him day in, day out. Uh, my broadcast partner and I uh, quite often get to you know, chat with him one-on-one and uh, you, you talk to him on the record and then you talk to him off the record and, and you learn uh, a thing or two about the game of hockey. So mm-hmm. you know, that, that's been fun. But yeah, he certainly uh, isn't afraid to speak his mind. Uh, he's got an unbelievable resume, uh, two-time Stanley Cup champion uh, as the head coach of the Kings, went to a Stanley Cup final with the Flames uh, before that back in 2004. And, you know, he's the uh, reigning Jack Adams award winner as the NHL's coach of the year. He's been there and done that. And, and he came in here and he made this team better. 
He helped individuals. Yeah, he helped individuals take a step, and he, he helped the team collectively take a big step last season. Uh, he's a, a great coach. There's no doubt about it, uh, and he's a, a great quote. As a matter of fact, uh, earlier today, uh, and I'm not sure this is the way uh, he intended it. Maybe, maybe it was. But uh, basically, when asked about Jonathan Huberto, said that, uh, and I don't remember his quote word for word, but something along the lines of, uh, he might be the best passer that this team has ever had. You know, Johnny Gaudreau is a pretty good passer too. So I'm not sure that was directed at Gaudreau, but it may have been, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was, but uh, I know a lot of people are taking it that way. And uh, that won't be the first or the last time that Daryl makes a comment that uh, can be interpreted in, in a number of different ways. It's, no, I, I love fun. it too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Markstrom, um, the potential of replicating that, performance what 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 do we think Uh, i have no question marks when it comes to jacob markstrom outside of uh, how he's played against the owners during his time with the flames because well let let me just jump to me it's it's so playoffs they are microcosms they are small snapshots it's hard to extrapolate that much from those right like it's like it's very it's not 82 games of the regular season right it's not, but he also struggled against them in the regular season, and he didn't struggle against many teams in the regular season. It's funny uh, having a chance to, to chat with one of the newest Flames, Kevin Rooney, who played for the Rangers last season. You know, he told me that uh, there was only one team in the NHL that Igor Shosturkin struggled against, and that was the Flames. He struggled in two starts <laughs> against them, but uh, you know, for the Flames, uh, obviously they were Shosturkin's kryptonite last season, and I would say that the Oilers were. Markstrom's kryptonite both in the regular season and in the playoffs because you look at what he did in the two rounds I know Jake Ottinger got all the headlines in that series Mm -hmm. between the Flames and the Stars and rightfully so there's no chance that series goes to a seventh and deciding game without him playing at an incredibly elite level he was that good and I would say he was the better of the two goaltenders in the series but Jacob Markstrom was really really good in that series as well Uh, they had very different workloads. Ottinger was very busy. Markstrom wasn't as busy, but it's funny after the series, Jake actually said that Jacob's job might've been tougher because he would sometimes go a number of minutes without seeing the puck or touching the puck. So I guess there's a couple of different ways to look at it, but you know, Jacob Markstrom, I would say over the last two or three years has really emerged as uh, an elite goaltender. He's the first no questions asked, number one guy the Flames have had since Mika Kiprasov. And, you know, as a runner-up for the Vesna Trophy last season, uh, they're incredibly confident in him. The, the one thing I do wonder about is if they might try to take a little bit off his plate. And, uh, again, I sometimes probably shouldn't read between the lines, but uh, Oilers head coach Jay Woodcroft, in the middle of that playoff series last spring, talked about Mike Smith and how he was fresh because he didn't play in 63 regular season games. I don't think it was lost lost on Woodcroft that Markstrom did play in 63 regular season games. I don't think it was a coincidence that he threw that number 63 out there. So I know there were some people wondering if he got played too much playing in 63 regular season games and then seven games in the first round against the Stars and and five in the second round against the Oilers and if fatigue was a factor. I don't know if it was or if it wasn't, but I do know that if the Flames can maybe get him down to between 55 and 60 games, you probably eliminate that question even being asked. 
Now, it might be easier for the Flames to do that this year than it was last year because their backup goaltender last season, Dan Vladar, had played in five career NHL games prior to last season. So we didn't really know what the Flames had in Vladar, but played in 23 games, was a really good number two goaltender. He has looked unbelievably good so far in the preseason. So wouldn't surprise me to see him get probably closer to 30 games, which uh, takes a few games away from Markstrom and uh, eliminates uh, the question of whether he got overplayed in the regular season, uh, uh, should the Flames get back to the postseason again. When Kadri was brought in, a lot of people speculated that that would do good things for Blake Coleman. Has Have they been playing together so far in the, in the preseason? They haven't been. Uh, the lines have been a little all over the place. The, the one line that's been pretty consistent uh, they've got uh, Elias Lindholm between Jonathan Huberdeau and Tyler Toffoli. Now that entire line gets the tonight's game off, but you know, that's going to be the flames number one line uh, uh, to start the season, unless something drastic happens between now and then, but they've been together from the first practice of training camp and in all the preseason games that they've all played in, that's been the line. So uh, I would expect uh, Daryl Sutter to really focus on finding pairs on his second and third lines. And one pair that we've, seen a lot of in, in training camp in the preseason is Michael Backlund and Blake Coleman. Uh, another pair that I think we're going to see moving forward is Nazem Kadri and Andrew Manjapani. Okay. And those two guys are going to play together uh, for the first time tonight. Manjapani was uh, nursing a little bit of an injury, so they've been careful with him. So he'll make his preseason debut. He'll be on the left side of, of Kadri. And that's a combination that I think we could see uh, a lot of come the regular season. And then as a final one for you to handicap this division, we look at, you know, to me, I've got Calgary and Edmonton as the one and two. After that, it starts getting pretty tricky because Vegas has a very high ceiling, but they have a lot of question marks, particularly mm -hmm. at their netminder. Um, then we start talking about LA. Maybe last year they were ahead of schedule a, a little bit, and maybe the Ducks this year will be the team that's ahead of schedule. And of course, the Sharks are looking to get back into the fray. We ask ourselves what the, the Bruce Boudreaux effect will be to Vancouver in year number two. And then the Kraken, um, you know, they have addressed some of those needs on offense, and they'll be very interesting as well. So, I mean, again, Calgary-Edmonton at the top two spots, that's the battle in my mind. But as we know, I, you know, as a sports broadcaster, I am very, very good at being wrong. I'll put it that way. We all are. Yeah, I, I think... I'm on the same page as you. Uh, I think the Oilers and the Flames in no particular order uh, are my favorites uh, to fight it out for first place in the Pacific Division during the regular season. The Golden Knights for me are the biggest wild card because I really love their group of forwards. I really love their group of defensemen, but I have big, big question marks about their goaltending because the way I see it, and maybe you see it differently, they've got four number twos. They don't have any number ones without Robin Leonard. Now, with that said, Maybe one of those guys that I look at as a number two today turns into a, a number one tomorrow or, mm -hmm. or at some point in time during the season. And if that happens, if the Golden Knights get good goaltending, I think you can probably put them uh, on the same level as the Flames and the Oilers, as teams fighting for the Pacific Division. The Canucks are an interesting one for me. No questions in goal. Thatcher Demko is elite, in my opinion. I like their group of forwards. I expect some bounce back seasons from a number of their forwards who had down years or who missed significant time due to injury last season, like uh, Elias Patterson. 
but I have question marks about their defense. They've got some good players back there. I just don't know if they have enough of them. Uh, the Kings, to your point, uh, were an up-and-coming team last season. I think they're probably going to fight for a, a wild-card spot, if not for a top-three spot in the Pacific Division this season. And then I think you have some teams that right now are rebuilding or, or retooling. Uh, the Kraken, obviously, starting from scratch. Uh, they're off to a great start in the preseason, 4-0 and with three shutouts. I'm not sure I'd read much into that, but uh, I think they're going to be at least a little bit more competitive this season. Uh, the Ducks have lots of young talent. Don't think they're ready to compete for a playoff spot. And I would say the same thing about the Sharks, uh, kind of in a, a transition phase. But uh, I definitely think that uh, the Flames and the Oilers have to be the preseason favorites to finish first, maybe co-favorites to finish first in the Pacific Division. The Golden Knights, though, I think are a team to watch. If they get good goaltending or at least uh, NHL average goaltending, I think they could be a team to, to watch out for as well. Derek, appreciate your time as always, my friend. Hope to see you soon. And uh, it's the best time of the year, man. Hockey's here. Hockey's here. Football's here. It is uh, love fall. And uh, we usually don't get much of a fall here in Southern Alberta, but we've had an unbelievable fall. It was 25 degrees on Saturday, Celsius. Uh, and I was out on the golf course and it was absolutely beautiful. So between a few more rounds of golf and uh, hockey and football, I'm a happy camper. So looking forward to the start of the regular season and uh, hopefully some good battles between the Flames and the Sharks. Again, Derek Wills, radio play-by-play -play voice of the Flames. And yeah, I mean, the Flames look really, really good. They will do battle with the Sharks, but I'm very, very much excited for their battles with Edmonton this year. Now let's jump to the two teams that finished behind the Sharks, starting with seventh place Anaheim. A record of 31, 37, and 14 last year. And although not quite on a parallel path to the San Jose Sharks, there are comparisons to be made. For more on the Ducks, we are now joined by their radio color commentator, Dan Wood. Dan, good to talk to you as always. You excited for the upcoming season? I am. I think it's going to be fun, and uh, I think we should all be excited about the upcoming season. It's uh, it's the closest, and, and I would say it is normal. I know it, you know there's still some border stuff for the Canadian teams, but you know for me, this it hasn't felt like this since the start of the 2019 season, Dan. I mean, it just it feels. We're in the locker room. We're, you know, holding mics in guys' faces. It's uh, it's all a positive sign. Yeah, it was pretty odd to be in the locker room for the first time after, you know, what, two years or whatever yeah. it is. Um, but it's it's nice. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, when uh, the numbers thin down and we get to manageable rosters and we can actually uh, just chat with guys in the room. Uh, that'll, be, that'll be very beneficial. So... I, you know, before we go any further, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, the 29th of September, not very far removed from the big hit on Trevor Zegris last night. You know, I, 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 the replays, I don't think it's quote unquote dirty. It looked like he lined them up. I, you know, in preseason, I don't think it's necessary. These are just my thoughts on it. You know, I don't need your commentary on it, but I did want to know if you'd heard anything a, and then B, you know, just how much of an impact if he has to miss any time, you know, you think this will be because obviously the rapid growth that we saw from him, the potential, I mean, that's, it, it, to me, it's potentially a huge hit, but obviously there's, there's other guys on this Ducks team to talk about. Well, yeah, you know, we don't know, at least I don't know at this point, less than 24 hours after the injury, what the severity of it is. And obviously everyone here is keeping fingers crossed that it's not a big deal. It didn't look good, I'll tell you that, when mm -hmm. Trevor went to the bench. Um, so, you know, we'll see. But 
Uh, of course, if he were to be lost for any length of time, that would be a big blow to the Ducks. He's their most skilled player, uh, their most exciting player, and he's a big part of this youth movement that the team is counting on to improve. So, you know, we'll have to hold our breath on that one. Uh, you know, if he's out for any length of time, it would be interesting to see how they would adjust. I think the plan has been for Mason McTavish uh, to play on the wing, but that might change if Zegras is out. Perhaps McTavish moves to the middle to fill that void. Uh, he's another kid, obviously, that the Ducks are very high on. He had uh, a tremendous year playing for numerous teams and was just uh, head and shoulders above everyone else at the World Junior Championship. So uh, the thing about McTavish, too, Ted, is he, unlike most players his age, he's already grown into his body. He yeah. already has a man's body. So, you know, he's not one of these kids that is going to be slight and you're going to have to worry about him getting hurt necessarily. Um, you know, we're all expecting big things from Mason McTavish. So we'll just have to see how it all shakes out. Well, in terms of, you know, pressure on these young guys like McTavish and, you know, Lundestrom as well, how is that looking right now? I mean, when we talk about the Sharks and Ducks being in very similar situations, to me, it's like, the, whether it's a Zegris, whether it's a McTavish, you know, or whether it's a Bordelow or an Eklund here, the fan bases of both teams are kind of waiting for the savior in these young players to, to change the direction of the franchise. Well, I think the Ducks have done a nice job. Uh, new general manager, Pat Verbeek, brought in some veteran guys who can support the kids, and you have to have that. I mean, I remember going back to the San Jose days in the mid to late 90s when then general manager Dean Lombardi brought in players like Kelly Rudy and uh, Tony Granado and Marty McSorley and Mike Vernon, trying to surround that group of young kids with some veteran know-how. Uh, and you have to do that if you want A, to be competitive and B, your young guys to learn the ropes. So, uh, you know, general manager Pat Verbeek this summer signed free agent forwards Ryan Strom and Frank Vetrano. Uh, they both made their preseason debuts Wednesday night. Uh, Strom had a goal and an assist, Vetrano with an assist. And then uh, on the back end, they had to do something given that they had traded away Hampus Lindholm and Josh Manson mm -hmm. late last season. So they signed John Klingberg as a free agent for yeah. one year. And Dmitry Kulikov, uh, they picked up in a trade with Minnesota that cost them nothing more than future considerations. I knew the Ducks would be able to take advantage of someone else's salary cap challenge. And that's exactly what happened with the Kulikov acquisition. So, um, you know, of course, the future is Zegras and McTavish and Terry and Drysdale, et cetera. But the guys I mentioned, the veterans, they're going to play key roles this season. There's no doubt about that. So what overall is the 30,000 foot view of the franchise right now? And, you know, after last year and the years before it, and, you know, where you do see the light at the end of the tunnel where it seems like things are trending in the right direction. Even though last year was by no means a success, it was still a trend in the right direction. Like how does that set things up this year? What are, what are the expectations? Well, I will speak only for myself as far as expectations go. And, you know, with the ducks having missed the playoffs for four years in a row now, which had never happened before in the relatively brief history of the franchise, 
um, you know, there certainly is a, a yearning to get back to the postseason. Now, whether it's realistic to think in those terms this season could be debated. Personally, uh, my goal the past couple of years has been for the Ducks to just stay in the race, keep things interesting as long as possible. Last season, they were able to do it for about half a season until their lack of depth really showed up when they started having some injuries and some mm -hmm. COVID-related absences. The way I look at it, Ted, if the Ducks could be in the race within realistic striking distance of a playoff position for, say, three quarters of the season or so, I would consider that to be, you know, a significant uh, improvement. Now, could they do better than that? Well, anything's possible. I don't think the Pacific Division is loaded with great teams. I think there are questions pretty much everywhere you look in the mm -hmm. division. So anything is possible. If you get off to a good start, get on a roll, who knows what might happen. But for my money, I just want to be talking about important games come February and March. To me, that would be terrific. What do you think, you know, Dallas would say if you asked him to define successor? Has he spoken to that at all? He really doesn't. He never has, and I don't think he ever will. What Dallas talks about constantly is today. Uh, one of his favorite phrases is win today. And that doesn't necessarily mean only the game you might be playing, but even if it's a practice day, do something to get better. In other words, win today means you did something that's going to help you going forward. Uh, you know, Dallas is not one to think about playoffs or records or how many games you're going to win. He has a very short-term view. And I think for a, for a hockey coach, that makes sense. You know, a general manager is a little different story, but that's where Dallas comes from. Yeah. No, and that's, that's understandable. Um, you know, I mean, in terms of watching this team grow and you see these young talents, I mean, do you, do you feel, I mean, do you agree with me in assessing that things are trending in the right direction, knowing that trending in the right direction is not always enough to make a coach, a general manager or a fan base happy? Oh, I do for sure. I don't think there's any question. I mean, if you look at where the ducks were two or three years ago and where they are now, um it's night and day yeah i mean you can definitely see uh, where the ducks are heading and uh, of course a lot of things have to go right there can always be uh, issues that crop up that set back your progress but you know if you were to ask me who is going to be among the elite teams in the pacific division two or three seasons from now i would definitely put the ducks in that group now that's assuming that players like Zegras and McTavish and Terry and Drysdale stay healthy, continue to progress. Um, but the Ducks also have some other prospects they're really excited about. Kids who have been drafted in the past year or two who aren't ready to play in the NHL yet, but maybe two or three years from now will be breaking in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think the future is bright. That's probably what any rebuilding team would say. But uh, I, I get the sense that around the NHL, uh, people in the know look at Anaheim and think the Ducks are on the right track. Yeah, and especially like we alluded to earlier with the fact that things did start out pretty positive 
until injuries happened a year ago. And I want to say there was some COVID absences in there as well, because it, you know, there was for almost everybody or, you know, at least significant for almost everybody. I don't think any team missed it at all, but you know, like this is, this is definitely, we all saw the potential last year. I think that's part of the fun is that you can see where this is trending. And, you know, just to go back to Trevor Zegras, you know, when was the last time you were able to look at a young player that had that type of ceiling where, you know, I would tune into some of the broadcasts of you guys last year and I could hear the, there was not, I won't say a sense of awe or anything, but it was like a, wow, like that was, you know, for a young player, he just did something that we don't see very often or haven't seen from a young player like that in a long time. No, I mean, the last time the Ducks had a young player who was this talented, this skilled, this exciting, you'd have to go back to the second year of the franchise when Paul Correa broke in as a rookie. Um, you know, for my money, Trevor Zegras has as much or more talent than anyone the Ducks have ever had. And that includes Paul Correa and Tim Solani. The mm-hmm. things that Zegras can do just take your breath away. And if uh, a fan is watching, you do not want to take your eyes off Trevor Zegras when he has the puck in the no. offensive zone because you never know what might happen. So, um, you know, the sky is the limit for this kid. Plus, He's a personality, you know, he embraces the attention. Oh, he's having fun um, you know, out there, Dan. That's, that's what I love. Yeah. He's, he smiles. He, he's a guy that you can really build around, not only on the ice, but off. So, you know, let's just hope that that injury he suffered in the game uh, Wednesday night against Arizona is not anything serious. So how are you ranking this division this year? I mean, I look at Edmonton. And Calgary is the one and two. And then it gets a little iffy after that, because if everything goes right for Vegas, then they're an entirely different situation, but they've got a lot of question marks at this point. And after that, it starts to get a little bit more murky. I I do like Vancouver, um, you know, and then, you know, LA, they had a, the first step of their resurgence. We look at the three California teams. They've all been kind of, you know, in one form of the same, mode over the last couple of years. I mean, where where do you view things right now? Well, as I said earlier, I think every team in a division has significant question marks. And I would also put Calgary and Edmonton in that uh, category. Obviously the flames and the Oilers look like the top two teams in the division, but you know, what if things don't work out in goal in Edmonton? What if the revamped flames don't mesh? I could see either or both of those teams getting off to slow starts. And then, of course, you're going to look at the Kings and then probably Vancouver as, you know, your next couple of likely playoff teams. But just as with the Ducks, young players who are going into their second year and you're hoping that they continue to improve, there's always a question. I mean, we all know about the quote-unquote sophomore jinx. (laughs) And I think that applies to teams too. And primarily the reason is because Trevor Zegras and Jamie Drysdale aren't going to surprise anyone anymore. Neither are the Los Angeles Kings. Opponents are going to be ready for those players and those teams that made jumps last season. So uh, getting to the playoffs was great for the Kings. They deserve a lot of credit. But does that mean that they're automatically going to get back to the playoffs? Absolutely not. 
I think this division is wide open. And whether you are the Ducks or the Sharks or anyone else, if things break right for you, you gain some confidence and you get going on a good path, you know, why not us, whoever yeah. us might yeah. be? <laughs> no, I, I, I agree 100%. Um, what's your biggest question for the Ducks heading into the year? And this doesn't have to be the biggest weakness. This doesn't have to be the biggest, you know, strength. Just what what is the question that's out there in your mind? Whether they can defend well enough to be uh, a good competitive team that can stay in the playoff race. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they have improved their offense uh, with the additions of Strom and Vetrano, and hopefully uh, the young players continue to grow. Um, you know, is it realistic to expect Troy Terry to score 37 goals again? Maybe, maybe not. But the Ducks have at least five top six forwards that you can uh, realistically expect to score 20 or more goals. So if they all get at least 20, and a couple of them maybe crack the 30 barrier, I think you're going to have enough offense. Plus, with the addition of John Klingberg, your power play should definitely be a threat. So if they get the offense, I expect the question becomes, can they keep enough pucks out of their net? Mm -hmm. With Josh Manson and Hampus Lindholm gone, I think there are some questions there. Now, I had... Uh, a person who I respect in Ducks hockey, hockey Ops tell me he believes their defense is going to be better than it was last year when Manson and Lindholm were here. Mm-hmm. We'll see about that. But, um, you know, the, the D remains a bit of a question, as does the goaltending. John Gibson has not been the John Gibson that he previously had. Uh, the past couple of years. And I think John Gibson has a lot to prove this season. Anthony Stolarz, who was terrific in a backup role last season, has to prove that he can maintain that level of play. So, you know, I think the Ducks are going to score three goals a game. They're going to have to limit the opposition to two. Can they do that? That's what we're going to find out. You know, it's interesting that you bring up Gibson because as the, the Sharks and Ducks and Kings all imitate each other, that was essentially everybody was asking about Jonathan Quick last year. Quick did it, and now people are asking, can he do it again? I mean, it's just, I, we're talking about three versions of the same thing in the California teams right now, and it's just it's it's fascinating to watch these teams on not quite parallel paths, but they're all on the same freeway. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, you go back to when all three of these teams were among the league's elite. It wasn't yeah. that long ago. And I know other clubs would come on the California road trip and just dread it because not only were the Ducks, Sharks, and Kings all good teams, but they also could put a hurt on you. And so, you know, strolling through California was not a whole lot of fun. I see a time, Ted, not too far off where we may see a repeat of that. Mm -hmm. Everything goes in cycles right now. uh, You know, you'd have to say the class of the Pacific division is in Alberta. Yep. Um, again, two, three years from now, that may not be the case. Life after Mr. Getzlaff. Uh, how, how's that? Different. The thing about Ryan Getzlaff, who obviously, um, you know, in, in his final seasons was nowhere near the player that he previously had been. 
But Ryan Getzlaff has such a big and strong personality Mm -hmm. that he was always going to be the focal point in the locker room and everywhere else. And, you know, with this team having embarked on a rebuilding plan, uh, a youth movement, I think, uh, you know, it, it has to turn the page, so to speak. So I think Ryan Getzlaff's retirement came at a good time, both for him and for the organization. I look forward to seeing who's going to emerge as the leadership group now. There are plenty of candidates, including some established veterans, uh, Cam Fowler, Adam Henrique, Jacob Silverberg come to mind. And then you have the younger core. Uh, General Manager Pat Verbeek addressed the void in the captaincy on the first day of training camp. And he said, they're going to wait. They're going to see who uh, steps up and, you know, fits into that role. And he made a, a rather interesting comment. He said, we want the captain to be someone who is going to be here for a lengthy period. Hmm. So to me, that indicates that as opposed to necessarily putting the C on Cam Fowler or Adam Henrique, they're probably thinking more in terms of it being you know, a Trevor Zegras or a Troy Terry or a Mason McTavish. Maybe the Ducks go without a captain, not only for this season, but maybe even another season or two, because you want to get the right guy. If you don't, you have a problem. Uh, I don't think there's any question that the Ducks have enough leaders that leadership is not going to be a problem. But to anoint someone the captain, I think that's something you have to be absolutely certain of and I'd rather see them wait than, you know, maybe make the wrong choice. Dan, we get you two times in five days to start off the month of November. So I will eagerly look forward to you being back in the building. It's always a pleasure talking hockey with you. And uh, like I said, I'll see you at the start of November. Sounds great, Ted. I'm looking forward to it. Again, that was Dan Wood, the radio color commentator for the Anaheim Ducks, joining us here on the Sharks Audio Network. And for those of you who might not remember before Dan worked for Anaheim, he covered the Sharks here in San Jose. Now let's talk about the team that finished at the bottom of the Pacific last year. No surprise really in what we saw as the Kraken and expansion team. They weren't expected to be amazing nor have anything close to the success in year number one that we saw from Vegas, but they were a respectable 27, 49, and 6 and have made some interesting moves in the offseason to definitely improve their attack, their weakest link in year number one. For more on the Kraken, we are now joined by Allison Lucan of Root Sports. And I am happy that we have um, the burgeoning rivalry between the Sharks and the Kraken to talk about because I felt like last year when these two teams met, it had um, a little bit of, uh, you know, just kind of, there was some rub, there was some grit. And it was interesting to watch that between two teams that, yeah, I mean, they're, for, for lack of a better term, and I don't mean to diminish it, but they happen to be arbitrarily placed together in a new franchise's, you know, expansion year. It's like, you know, this could have ended up in other divisions, but it happened to be that the the Sharks and the Kraken are doing war now. And I'm just you know, curious, did you feel that as well? Did you feel some of that kind of, that sandpaper to the two when they played against each other last year? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, particularly when you look at a brand new team like the Kraken, they're looking to establish that identity and see who they can maybe start running up against, you know, that games that mean something are, are a lot more fun for, for teams and, and for fans, in my opinion. So there might be a little feeling out too to say, hey, who are we going to, who are we going to get in the grind with here early? 
Yeah, and it'll be interesting, you know, just to see where everything goes. So I guess that's a good jump into your 30,000-foot view on where things are with the franchise and the team after year one, looking ahead now to year number two. Yeah, you know, I, I think that this is an organization that's still building, but they're doing it the right way. I do think that they had a tremendous summer, particularly uh, in the draft, and then some really nice free agent and trade acquisitions. But, you know, it's it's important for people to remember who are following the Kraken that they should expect improvement this year. But the real impact of a lot of these offseason moves is going to take a couple years to really start to open that true contender window, in my opinion. You know, we all know it in this space and in pretty much any sports space, you bring in these young, talented players, but it takes them a couple years to become really top of their game. And so while there's young talent on the come, and again, some improved assets that came through um, from experienced players, better, but still building, but building in the right way. Let's look at one of those young players, Matty Beniers. Um, the pressure, and this is, I, I look at all young athletes now, but you know, we see it here with the Sharks, with a young player and a William Eklund and a Thomas Bordalo. But people are talking about Matty Beniers is in like, look what he's potentially capable of. And, you know, there's there's a lot of pressure there. There is. A, there absolutely is a lot of pressure. And, you know, you as most people do when you don't know a lot about a player, the first thing you do, of course, is look at their stat line. And this is a young man who was almost a point per game player in his first 10 NHL games of his entire career. That's probably not what Matty Beniers will be, particularly in his first full season. But, you know, what his work in the offseason has done nothing but impress me in terms of what he has brought back to camp, um, both rookie camp and training camp. This is a player who looks ready. He remains confident. He remains to be a person who is demanding that you watch him when he's on the ice. He has the ability to play in all three zones. He's very creative. He's very smart. But, you know, again, this will be his first full 82-game season mm -hmm. in theory. And you know, we, we talk about this with goaltenders. We talk about this with elite scorers is that, you know, when you're new, you have a little bit of a jump, but then the league starts to figure you out. So there's going to be some of that back and forth, I believe, in his game that is normal. And we all know what the grind of this season can feel like. So he's going to have to get his body and his mind used to that, too. Are you expecting to see him with uh, Burakovsky and Bjorkstrand? You know, I think that it definitely Burakovsky, you know, they've been playing of late and it's a line that um, we'll probably see a little bit here as preseason concludes with Jared McCann on the other side. Hmm. So it'll be curious to see where they put, uh, who they might put on that left wing. I'd be happy if Bjorkstrand's there too. And then with Burakovsky, how, how high are the expectations there? Yeah, the Kraken were a team that desperately needed scoring last year. And so this was a move that was a direct answer uh, to that need. I think that the organization is very high on him. I think that they got him at a at a great deal, um, a great term. And, and again, this is someone who has that championship pedigree two times over. And so, again, that understanding of what it actually takes to push your game as a team to the next level, having that in the room is another key thing I think they're looking for from him. Yeah, it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how this <clears throat> continues to work out because, you know, there, to me, my whole take last year when watching the Kraken is this doesn't present like an expansion team. You know, we've I've seen expansion teams in multiple sports and sometimes it does not go well. And sometimes in, in Vegas's instance, it goes exceptionally <laughs> well, but that's, you know, an extreme aberration. But watching Seattle last year, I was kind of like, okay, I, you know, I, I like a lot of what I see out here. But yeah, like you alluded to, 
it was there was not enough scoring. I mean, you can start there. Um, and, and, and you know, there's the desire for Grubauer to be even better this year. But you know, I, how much of last year, like this is the question I ask myself. It's like, can you overreact to what you saw in year number one, or how do you make sure you don't overreact or conversely underreact? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, arguably that that is perhaps part of what has Vegas doing things a little differently now too, and, and having some cap struggles and having to make moves that probably are a little painful for fans and the organization alike is that it seems like they maybe changed course after that quick hit of success. Um, but, you know, I don't think that this organization did that. Again, they looked at their needs. They went out and made some sensible deals for talent that was out there. I don't think we saw a ton of overpay coming in free agency. They made smart draft moves. And again, they're looking to slowly, slowly get better. Um, if there is no improvement, you know, I think that will be a concern, but that just doesn't seem possible with, with what they've done. And I think you can even feel in the room this year, I mean, and how nice is it to be in the room in general, but these guys are comfortable with each other. It's, it's not 30 players coming together who've never met before, who barely played together, who know nothing, who don't know the systems. And um, just that alone, I think it is reason for optimism. You know, you talk about us being back in the room and it's it's funny to me and you may have noticed this as well, but it seems like every interview we've seen from the different camps around the league, everybody seems to be in a much better mood overall. Not that they were in a bad mood per se last year, but this is as normal as it's been since 2019. And Allison, it's obviously because, you know, people like us can go and shove a microphone in their face again. That's that's my bit that I'm running with. But I, I do feel like that that sense of normalcy, knock on wood, has set back in and it's affected every camp across the league. Everybody just seems like they're in a good mood. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's it's funny because even here in Seattle, you know, when the last season was over, this group was finally starting to kind of relax into their groove and their identity as a team. It took that long. We talk about how we can finally be back in the room and get to know players in a, in a different way. These guys, as I was mentioning before, couldn't even really get to know each other last year. They didn't, ha they couldn't have team outings. And again, this was a yeah. whole new team. So I think that there's definitely an optimism and, and the story I'm going with is hopefully they'll be more willing to keep answering our questions as the season <laughs> goes along, because we know that that's not always their favorite thing to do. No, no. And we, we can only blame ourselves for that. We just, you know, <laughs> we want to get the, uh, we want to get the good line and, and roll with it. Um, talking about, uh, Philip Grubauer, knowing that a former shark and Martin Jones, who, you know, to me still has great potential in his career, is is Grubauer expected to be pressed by Martin Jones or is there a thought that this might be a 60-40 or how is this shaping up? Yeah, you know, the Kraken from design, even before Chris Drieger's injury, we're going to go more with kind of a 1A, 1B with Philip Grubauer taking probably more of the workload. But, you know, it feels like even across the league, we're trying to get away from this, you know, 70-30, 80-20 split that we saw historically in goaltending. If Martin Jones plays better, he's going to get more time in the net. That is what Dave Haxtell has said repeatedly. And I, I think that that's real. I think that, you know, I'm with you. I think Martin Jones has something to prove. I think he had a rough season behind a rough team last year. Um, and he wants to, to make a statement with his play, as does Philip Grubauer. And they both seem to be getting along well. They have a new goaltending coach. And I think that they'll probably look to split the net particularly if Jones can, you know, be at the top of his game again. How does Dave Hextall and maybe the franchise at large define success this year? 
Well, of course, you know, this is an organization that rightly will tell you that they want to be in the playoffs when the season ends. But, you know, we can look around our division and know that even as teams get better, um, there's there's still a lot of competition internally within just this, this small group of teams. So I think if this team is has is better than last year, and particularly if they're in the conversation, say, come that, you know, uh, post-deadline timeframe, I think that's going to be really important. And I think that's going to be all signs pointing in the right direction, even if Seattle cannot make it past eight, game 82 this year. Let me bounce my quick handicap of the division right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. We look at the top two, Calgary and Edmonton. I don't think that's that wild of a take. And then after that, it gets pretty interesting because Vegas has a high ceiling, but they've also got their goaltender situation right now. Vancouver, the, the Bruce Boudreaux effects we look at last year. Um, L.A., they maybe were a little bit ahead of schedule last year, and maybe they'll regress a little bit. Anaheim, you know, maybe they are going to have that ahead of schedule year that the Kings had last year. The Sharks, I think, want to bounce back. We, we look at the Kraken. I mean, this it's easy to define one and two, after that, it gets, or I won't even say one and two, I'll say one and one. But after that, it gets very, very interesting and very wide open. I, I completely agree with you. And I think that's why, again, just being in the conversation and bringing this market into that experience, you know, with I'm sure people who, who follow baseball know what a high it's been around here since the Mariners finally did what <laughs> they did. And to, to be able to translate that conversation to hockey, to these fans, is a key part of cementing the market as well. And so I'm with you. I think, you know, the stinking flames, we thought maybe they were going to be a little weaker, but then they made some good moves there themselves. Um, but yes, this, this Kraken team should be able to contend with that whole kind of jumbly mix after, after those first two. And then as we approach the regular season, what is the big question looming in your mind? This doesn't have to be a weakness. This doesn't have to be a strength, but just what, what is the question that's shouting out to you every time you watch this team? Yeah, you know, other than the topics we've already discussed here, of course, goaltending, of course, looking at a Maddie Beneers and, and probably a Shane Wright as well. I'm really interested to see what happens on the defensive side of the team. Uh, last year, that was this team's calling card. It was a big piece of their identity. But there's now some, some discussion happening and players are having to fight for jobs, particularly for that bottom two pair. And so what does that unit end up looking like? How do they perform? Does that persistence defensively stay with this team and its identity? Or do things start to shift? And is the offense now maybe more of the forefront of the conversation and what this team is all about? Allison, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. I look forward to uh, talking with you and bugging you for an interview as we get close to the first matchup between these two teams, which I believe is towards the end of November off the top of my head. I could be wrong. I, I'll admit, I have not memorized the schedule as of yet, but <laughs> I, I, think it's toward, I think it's towards the end of November. We're, we're, we're there visiting you guys first. So I'll probably be bugging you again then. Perfect. I would love to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Again, that was Allison Lucan, analyst for the Kraken on Root Sports, and that wraps it up for our division preview show. And you heard me say it a couple times throughout. In this division, Calgary and Edmonton, they are the clear one and two. After that, it gets very, very tricky. So this is where the Sharks have their opportunity, if they are a bit ahead of schedule, to move into playoff contention. But more than anything from the Sharks, I want positive growth. But if that growth can simultaneously occur with this team being in the playoff hunt, 
I'll take that as well. Stay tuned to the Sharks Audio Network as we get you ready for the start of the season. A big thanks to Allison Lucan, Dan Wood, Brendan Batchelor, Jesse Granger, Jim Fox, Bob Stoffer, and Derek Wills for joining me on this division preview. For the San Jose Sharks, I'm Ted Ramey, signing off. This podcast can be found for download under Sharks Hockey Digest on iTunes, Google, and Spotify. And on demand anytime on the Sharks Plus SAP Center app. Presented by Western Digital. All music by Yogi Yen.